Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Creepscast14 and use code Creepscast14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. Hello everyone and I hope you're all doing well. I just wanted to take a moment to say that I greatly appreciate your support with everything surrounding Creepscast and the YouTube channel. You all make this possible and I'm grateful for it. Without further ado, let's get into this week's scary stories and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. An infection is spreading along the East Coast. We're in danger. Written by Wolf McGrath. I never really thought I would have to write about something like this. I'm Dr. George Weaver. I'm a lead mycologist at the University of Maryland. Recently, things have been going to crap. So, let me start from the beginning. It was a warm day in May. My friend Roy Fitzpatrick and I were going to the state park in Virginia. I forget which one. We had packed beers and some random food. I was going to drive us down there and he was going to drive back. When we arrived, it was mid-afternoon and we had started to set up our tents. I've always been terrible at it so Roy had to help me. I was good at lighting fires only because I had brought a lighter. I lit a fire and I got to our food. I had brought some chips and hot dogs and Roy brought something. I can't remember, maybe some other food. We sat around the campfire and reminisced about our life, and if we were proud of who we had become. I enjoyed my life. I lived alone except for pets, and I had a well-paying job that I genuinely liked. Roy worked as a biologist on the same campus that I did. We met at a bar a few blocks away. We had been friends for about 12 years. I never thought life would change so suddenly. We sat around for a while longer before we both crashed. We were planning to hike tomorrow once we were coherent after all of the alcohol. When I woke up, it hit me like a truck. There was a hideous stench sitting in the stagnant, humid air. It was extremely foul. Not to mention that it was raining. The forecast had said it wouldn't rain, but it was wrong as usual. I was drenched the moment I had stepped out of my tent. I saw that Roy's tent was already open. When I walked over to his tent, it was empty. I didn't know where he was. I decided to try to find the source of the stench. I covered my nose with my shirt. I looked around for a while. While I went along the hiking path, it got worse. I knew that I was closer when I could smell it through my shirt. When I rounded a tree, I saw what I was smelling. When I laid my eyes upon it, I puked up what was in my stomach. Before me on the ground was a body that appeared to be in an advanced state of decomposition. It had a plethora of toadstools and molds growing out of it. This was jarring because I should have been able to smell it the night before. I looked closer and realized that the body was, as far as I could tell, 
Roy. I wanted to run away. I wanted to run to the car and speed away, but I had to call the police. When they arrived, they questioned me. Obviously, I was the main suspect. They told me that I could leave, but they seemed apprehensive to do so. I drove back to my apartment in D.C. I ran in and locked the door, before dropping to the floor to curl up in the fetal position. I don't know how long I sat like that, but eventually I had to get up to drink water before I would die of dehydration. I went to work the next day, trying to forget about what I saw. I was given a sample of mold from a patient at the Baltimore Municipal Hospital. The man that had handed it to me also informed me that it was growing in his lungs and heart. I wasn't thrilled to see this because my friend had just succumbed to some sort of fungal infection. I placed the mold under the microscope and observed it. The mold seemed to be moving on its own. Very subtle movements. It would take someone observant to notice. It was moving towards me as best as possible while being trapped between two pieces of glass. I removed the top piece. The fungal strands began growing toward me. I placed the glass back. I had never seen a mold like this. The patient that they had gotten this mold from had died before the ambulance got to the hospital. I decided to go see the patient for myself to see how the mold was growing. When I arrived at the hospital, I told the receptionist who I was and what I was there for. She told me that the patient was in room 406. I took the elevator up. I trotted down the hallway to room 406. And when I entered, they were right about to move the body to the morgue. The orderlies asked who I was and why I was there. I told them that I worked down at the University of Maryland and that I was a lead mycologist. I informed them of the nature of my visit to observe the body and its atypical mold. They let me see the body. The state of the body was extremely poor. It was decaying, and mold was overtaking many parts of it. Although mold grows on dead and living subjects, never at the rate that was recorded. Generally, people who inhale spores can be treated and released, but perhaps this was a form of hyperfatal mycotoxin. It was possible, but certainly uncommon. I took a sample of the mold and put it in a small container. When I detached the strands of mold, they began growing towards me, exactly like the last sample I was given. I looked once again. One thing I noticed was that there were very small toadstools growing out of the patient's eyes. This was too much for me to bear, so I thanked the orderlies and quickly laughed. I thought that I could forget about what had happened yesterday, but I guess working so close to fungus doesn't help. I returned to the campus and went to my lab. I was perplexed at the nature of this mold. I continued to observe this mold. After doing so for a while, I decided to test it out on something living besides me. I retrieved a ladybug from outside and dropped it and a strand of mold into a container. The mold grew towards the ladybug. 
The frightened insect realized this and tried to get away, but there wasn't much room. When the strand had reached the ladybug, it pierced the ladybug's exoskeleton, and then it stopped moving. As it sat there motionless, presumed dead, I saw very minute strands of mold emerging from beneath the exoskeleton. The mold stopped growing after encompassing the entire insect. Reluctantly, I captured another insect from outside, this time a wasp. Wanting to prove what I had found, I grabbed a camera. I set it up, pointing at the container that the wasp was in. I put the wasp in the same container that the dead ladybug was in. The strands of mold, like I suspected, began growing towards the wasp. The same results occurred once again. The wasp had been overtaken by the mold. I placed a sample of mold under the microscope once again, this time to see if these spores were indeed present in the myclium. They were. This worried me greatly because not many people had been in contact with this mold, including me. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find out where the patient that had been killed by this mold was from, because hospitals just don't hand out that information. I stashed the mold samples in my work safe, just to make sure that no one touches them. I returned home and reflected on the past two days. As far as I could tell, the mold was present in at least two states, maybe DC, but I had no proof. I decided to look into more cases like this, if there were any. I was trying to see how widespread this was. I tried looking it up, but the only case was the one that was at the hospital in Baltimore, as well as Roy. Both were only on local news websites. I guess no one really thought much of it. Any type of fungus with the capability to spread like this could become an international disaster. And it was also confusing because it spread extremely quickly in the insects, but I wasn't sure how long it took to spread in Roy or the patient. The next morning when I arrived at my lab, I was informed on three more cases of the mold, all occurring in the orderlies that had been helped to transport the bodies to the morgue. They were all currently in the hospital in critical condition. A few minutes later, a man in a black suit arrived. He was looking for mycologists, and I was obviously trying to get an inside look at the patients and their conditions. I told the man my position, and he seemed to think that was good enough, so he took me back to his car. I entered and sat down in the front passenger seat. Along the way, the man exclaimed to me that he was working for the hospital, and he was sent to get someone that was good with fungus. He informed me of what was happening to the victims of this mold. And when we arrived at the hospital, we rushed to the isolation ward, and I was given a hazmat suit to wear. I was glad that in my previous two encounters with this mold, that I had been spared the fate. We arrived in the room with the three patients. They were all being tended to by hospital staff in hazmat suits. All of them looked like they were on the verge of death. By just looking, you could barely tell that they were alive. I approached one of the nurses. I asked what sort of medication, if any, they were being given. I was told they were on the heaviest antifungal medications that the hospital had, but it didn't seem to be working. 
The staff asked me what I knew about the fungus. I told them as much as I knew. They were grateful that I had any information at all. While we were all standing there, one of the patients audibly died. He violently coughed and he sagged. When he did cough, a large cloud of spores erupted from his mouth. The staff and I rushed over to see what he looked like. Like the body that I saw yesterday, mold was overtaking his skin. Toadstools poked out of it as well. Exactly what had happened to the last two people who had succumbed to the mold. This was an infection that needed to be treated with great care. If these spores were released into the air, the damage would be catastrophic. I told the hospital staff here that they needed to treat this situation as if it would end the world. A woman in a hazmat suit stepped up to me. She had dark blonde hair and a scowling face. She looked to be about in her mid-fifties. She introduced herself as Dr. Catherine Breckenridge. She was the hospital's disaster response director, or the DRD. Her main job was to prevent the spread of extremely deadly or contagious diseases. She asked me how fast something like this could spread. I explained that when these spores are released, if they are carried by the wind, they can travel as far as the wind goes. Theoretically, to the other side of the world if the wind holds up the whole way. She sat and thought for a moment. She decided that even though it takes up valuable space in the isolation ward, she would have to keep the patients in there. She asked me what the most effective ways were to remove fungus. I told her that vinegar might work to kill it, and otherwise extreme heat, extreme cold, or fire. She said that she didn't want to set the hospital on fire, and the room wasn't well insulated enough to keep it as cold as they needed it to be. Vinegar probably wouldn't eliminate the threat entirely. I informed her that bleach might work as well. She thought for a moment before departing from the room. I looked at the other patients, which according to the heart rate monitor was still alive somehow. They looked as if they were in hell. I could see the mold spreading under their skin slowly. One of them started flatlining. The other staff in the room made no movement, perhaps thinking that there was no way to stop what was happening. I saw the mold under her skin had reached her skull, so I assumed it had grew to her brain. Catherine returned with flame-retardant suits and wall coverings. She told us that they were going to scorch the room until I was sure that the mold was dead. They had the other staff members take the patients who had passed already off of their beds and laid them out on the flame-retardant wall covering which she had placed on the ground. The bodies were placed on the mat, and Catherine had all of us step out and put on our new suits. When she came back, she asked if we were ready she had also brought a fire extinguisher just in case the fire got out of control. She set the room ablaze, and we all watched as the mold that was visible shrank into nothing as the fire laid waste to the bodies. We could hear crackling as the skin was melting and splitting. Catherine waited a good 20 minutes before she put out the fire. When she did, she had the orderlies come in with bags, and she told me to return to wherever I came from. When I got back to campus, I went immediately to my lab to make sure that no one had gotten into my safe and had touched the samples. 
Luckily, no one had. I continued to work for the rest of the day until my shift had ended. I went home and fed my pets. After which I continued to try and find any other example of this kind of mold. I could find none. This relieved my fears. Several days passed without much incident. It seemed as if the spread had been limited or non-existent. And then somehow it slipped out of my memory that Roy was outside. And a lot of cops had been around him. Although to my knowledge nothing had come from that so maybe it was fine. Unfortunately, my previous thoughts about the situation had been wrong. About a month after the room had been burned, I heard on the news that the hospital in Baltimore was under a lockdown. A reporter was in front of the hospital, talking about how several dozen people had fallen ill with a new kind of infection. He said he didn't know what kind it was, as it had not been disclosed. But he was talking about how all the patients were in critical condition, and that all ambulances were being diverted to a nearby hospital. I knew exactly what was going on, but I was powerless. I decided to destroy my sample of the mold, as it was too dangerous to exist. I grabbed it out of my safe and headed home. When I arrived home, I tried to think of how I would do this. I decided to start a grease fire on my stove and burn it. I did so knowing how dangerous it was. Fortunately for me, I didn't catch my apartment on fire. I had no idea what to do. I was assuming that my department would be swamped with requests to help learn about this new mold. The next day at work, several government agents arrived at the lab where I and several other workers worked. They said that they needed whoever the most experienced mycologist was. No one said anything so. Trying to figure out what was happening, I said that I was. This was a big mistake, but I wouldn't realize this for a little while. They told me to come with them. Once I was inside their fancy car, they made me sign a non-disclosure agreement that if violated could get me prosecuted. I was driven to the hospital and taken inside. The place was as empty as ever. They led me down the hallway into a room with a dying patient. They showed me this and told me about what was happening. I was already aware, but I sat through their lecture about it. Afterwards, I told them that I had already been dealing with all of this, so I told them what I had to do to get rid of it. The three agents that had taken me started to contemplate. After a few minutes, they told me that they needed me to help develop a cure. I was taken aback and I stupidly agreed, and was then taken from the room that I was in to a different room of the hospital. Catherine was present in this room, which looked like a staff room. Catherine asked if I had been recruited, and I nodded. She sighed and looked hopeless. The agents told me to wait until a CDC operative arrived to discuss the plans of containment. I waited for a good hour before the door opened again. Catherine said nothing the entire time, and I didn't know what to say. When the door opened, a man in a hazmat suit entered the room. He was 6'3", bald and around 40 years old. He introduced himself as the CDC emergency disease operative, and he was here to gather samples and any information he could, 
before taking us back to Georgia to be present at the CDC HQ. I'm worried about my pets, I asked if I could take them with me, and he said yes, and that all of the questions would be covered before I left. I followed him to the ICU, where he began to observe the patients who were, like usual, on the verge of death. He broke off a toadstool and placed it at a vial. He then took some spores that the patient was exhaling. He watched the patient for 13 more minutes before they died. The hospital staff came in and took the body away. I'm confident that they were going to burn it. The CDC operative led Catherine and I back to the staff room, where he presented us with a clipboard with what looked like 30 pages attached to it. He told us that, to go with him, we would need to read the form and write out our information. I read the entire thing. The gist of it was that I would not be allowed to speak of anything I had seen, that I'll get paid and be given proper housing in the CDC HQ. I would not be allowed to leave until authorized by a CDC admin, and that by signing, I acknowledge and agree to the contents in the form. It mentioned that my belongings and pets would be gathered by CDC operatives. I sat and thought for a good long while on this. I would be paid and given housing. I would also be allowed to take my pets. The part that I was struggling with was not being able to leave until allowed. Catherine had already signed it by this point. My pets were all that mattered to me, and I signed. It asked for my address, my phone, my full legal name, my date of birth, my social number, and any medical conditions that I had. After filling out the form, I handed it back to the CDC operative standing over me. He took it and told us to follow him. I stood up and followed after Catherine. We walked out of the hospital and into a car with the CDC logo on the door. He opened the door for us and we both sat down inside. He got in the front passenger seat and said something to the driver that I couldn't quite make out. The car began to move. I was sweating and nervous. I had no idea how much damage this fungus could do, or how long I would be stuck at the CDC HQ. I was hoping that the CDC had a plan to deal with this. I was wondering if they had already informed the World Health Organization yet. I figured that they would have had to at this point. The car drove to the airport in Baltimore, where we were told to get out. We walked into the airport and, like usual, went through security screening. After that, we were taken to Gate 6, where two other people were waiting. The plane connected to this gate looked like a private one, so I wondered who these other two people were. I took a seat and continued being nervous. Catherine looked calm and collected. She seemed to notice that I was nervous and tried to reassure me that everything would be fine. I wanted to believe her. I wanted to believe her so bad that I think I almost did. After a few minutes, we were able to board the plane, which was fairly small and had couches and a TV. I had never been on a plane like this before. Usually, all I can afford is a coach ticket. I sat down on one of the couches as Catherine, the CDC operative, and the two other people boarded. Catherine sat in a chair in the back, and the three others sat on the remaining couch. The TV was on a national news channel, but it was muted. 
the CDC operative finally introduced himself to me as Richard Hayes. He also told me that there were some chips and sodas if I wanted any, but I was too nervous to eat or drink. I stared at the TV as I felt the plane begin to move. I was told the flight would be about an hour and 30 minutes. I was on edge the entire time. The news never mentioned anything about it, which I was glad about, meaning that it wasn't too bad yet. I wondered if everyone who was infected at the hospital was already dead. If so, I knew that they were going to be burned. I hoped that this proved effective, although I don't know how many spores were floating around in the hospital. Catherine did nothing the whole time. As for Richard and the other two, they talked for the whole flight, although it was muffled so I couldn't tell what they were saying. They gestured at me a few times so I assumed they were talking about me at one point. I felt the plane land and my stomach sank again. This time I wondered what I would be told at the CDC HQ. When I got off the plane, I was led by Richard out of the airport into another car with the CDC logo on the door. However, this one was a limousine. I sat in the back as everyone else filed in. The car started to move, and it wasn't long after that that I arrived at the CDC main building. It was impressive. I might be excited if these circumstances weren't so grim. Richard led us into a reception area, and we were allowed to keep going without signing anything. Through twisting corridors and stairwells, we arrived at what I figured to be the third sub-basement. From here, we were led into a large, circular room with a table in the middle. From my count, 28 other people were sitting at the table when we had walked in. Not too many people seemed to even notice that we had opened the door. I took a seat at one of the empty chairs and after a few minutes of the people talking, they finished and looked over at Catherine and I. The man who looked to be in charge spoke. So, you are George Weaver, I presume, and this is Catherine. Um, yes sir, I stammered out. Thank you for choosing to work with us, you've made this a lot easier. Now, you may have some questions surrounding your involvement. Well, you, George, were picked because not only are you a mycologist, you were the first person to see an example of what we are now calling AGG-091. As for you, Catherine, you were chosen because you were in charge of containing some of the first infected. Now, if you could be so kind as to share with us what you already know about this disease. I started... Well, I actually had a sample, and after testing it on two insects, a ladybug, and a wasp, I could tell you that whatever this is, it is able to sense where the closest organism is to it. It will grow towards it, and then pierce the skin or exoskeleton to begin growing inside of the organism. Catherine interjected. From the time of arrival to the hospital to a patient's death was on average 15 hours, now to be clear, I don't know how long it was growing inside of them before they were admitted. When they were admitted, the usual complaint was that they had a hard time breathing, and they had either tachycardia or arrhythmia. So going based off of that, it already made its way out of their lungs and into their heart. And this means that every single one of the patients that was admitted had inhaled the spores. Meaning that spores are in the air above, 
and around Maryland and Virginia. There was silence in the room for a good few seconds before several people left. The man who had addressed us told us to follow him. He led us to a computer room, with a large screen at the front of the room, with a world map on it. I watched as the map zoomed in on the eastern United States. He asked me to tell them where exactly I was when I first saw AGG-091. I told them the name of the park and saw a pin drop on the location. On another panel, I saw them looking at wind patterns for the past 47 days. They overlaid that data with the data of outbreak locations. Based on what it was saying, the spores could have traveled as far as Maine by this point. I felt my stomach drop again. If it was as far as Maine, how could it ever be stopped? The man who had brought us here took a cell phone out of his pocket. He used one of his speed dials and he walked away while it rang. Catherine came up next to me and just shook her head. What the heck did I get myself into? Uh, I was only a few years away from retiring. I looked over at her, wondering how she was staying so calm. Maybe she just didn't care. Or maybe she had just seen so much that nothing affected her anymore. What about you? Why did you do this? Her question startled me out of my thinking. Um, curiosity and money, I suppose. The only real thing that I care about is my pets, and they're here. She looked away when I finished talking and crossed her arms. I looked back at the screen. A number appeared labeled Confirmed Cases. The number read 43. Maryland, D.C. and Virginia were shaded in red. After a few moments, the number jumped from 43 to 49, and New Jersey was shaded in. I figured at this point that they were calling major hospitals in these states and asking if they had anything like this. Six new cases in New Jersey. Another number appeared labeled Confirmed Deaths. The number read 40, meaning that only nine people who were infected were still alive. I don't know how long I watched that number rise, until Richard told me that I could go to my room, and that if he needed anything, that he would call me. I decided to stay in the large room, wanting to see the number of cases rise. It was at 67. I don't know when, but I fell asleep because I was woken up by Richard who told me that he needed my help. The screen displayed at 67. I walked with Richard to a laboratory room. Several people were working here when I came in, and Richard handed me off to another person. This person introduced themselves as researcher Kevin Graham. He told me that he wanted to know what could be done to kill the virus. I told him that super-strength antifungal medicine slowed it slightly, but other than that, all I had tested was fire. I had explained how maybe extreme cold could but you would just end up killing the patient with hypothermia. He considered for a moment. I could see that he had a sample of the fungus behind him. He had tested it on a rat. The rat in question was no longer alive, it seemed. He asked if these spores were flammable, and I had no answer. He turned back around to his dead rat and leaned in closer to observe. I could see the fungus trying to grow towards him. I asked him if I could test something with it. He said yes as long as it didn't remove it from the container. 
I positioned me and him approximately the same distance away from the container. I was trying to see if it could grow towards more than one organism at the same time. And it could. It was growing towards both of us. Towards me faster, I assume because I was closer. I then asked if I could put more soil in there, and he said yes. I was trying to see if it would grow underground, because if so, we were in big trouble. My fears were confirmed as I saw it taking root in the ground, seeming like it was trying to prevent its own removal. Based on the test with a rat, it was strong enough to penetrate skin and exoskeleton, but not glass. I asked how long it took the rat to stop moving entirely, and he said 15 minutes and 36 seconds. He said that he had the rat inhale spores, so 15 minutes from the lungs. As I watched the fungus grow in the dirt, it's likely and began to grow out of the dirt, and once at a certain length, they released spores, a cloud so thick that I was able to see it. My only thought was, crap. I watched in horror as the spores fell back on the ground in the container and started growing more of the fungus. The growth of the fungus was the most alarming thing about this. After about 30 minutes, the container was covered in fungus so thick that you could hardly see the rat anymore, buried underneath the thick layers of overlapping fungus. Kevin was logging the data that we had acquired and sending it to a main server. I stood there, staring at the containment tank. Curious, I took another rat from the tank of them in the bottom left corner of the room. I waited for a time when spores were settling down to drop it in. I could hear it moving for a few minutes before it got faint. I couldn't really see it in the tank, as there was far too much fungal material in there. However, this added amount of myclean and spores led to the rat dying in 3 minutes and 47 seconds. This meant that the more dense an area was with AGG-091, the faster it could kill people. I considered what the international implications of this could be. Considering last I had seen the number of confirmed cases was 67, that it may kill itself out as other diseases have. I quickly dismissed this thought realizing that the fungus affected everyone from grass to humans. What would people think once the existence of this fungus made its way to the general public's knowledge? This was definitely a borderline apocalyptic scenario. I felt out of place here. I wasn't entirely sure of my purpose. I went back to the monitoring room where I found Catherine. She was asleep in an office chair. The screen read 68 cases, 61 deaths. No new states were shaded in yet. I was surprised Delaware had yet to be filled in. Canada had luckily not been exposed to these spores yet. While I was standing lost in my thought, once again, a man got my attention. I turned to see a man with short, curly hair in his mid-forties. He introduced himself as James McDonald, the CDC director. He told me that my purpose here was to try and research or find any sort of treatment that could possibly prevent people from dying. My resources were near limitless and my time was limited only by the spread. I was sent to the main holding area containing the fungus. There were several researchers here seemingly studying AGG-091. Trying to create a cure was going to be extremely difficult, given what I had to work with starting out. 
No fungal infection in history had ever been this extreme, and nothing could even compare. Most irrational remedies would not ever work. As far as I knew at that moment, it couldn't be cured. Giving up wasn't truly really an option though. Things like eucalyptus, lemongrass, and peppermint usually worked on antimicrobials. However, in this case, they were useless, doing absolutely nothing at all to stop the spread of spores. Most of my work during this time involved me slowly realizing the existential horror of the scenario playing out. However, I did make some strides in creating a cure. In the first month, I figured out that the fungus reacted violently with other fungi, often to a point of killing off AGG-091. The problem was, a massive quantity of any given fungus in relation to AGG-091 was required, and this only worked on the fungus proper, and attempts to stop spores had been unsuccessful. There were fungi non-fatal to humans however, like I had mentioned earlier, you required such a massive quantity as to make it non-viable. Another thing I quickly figured out was that these spores were in fact highly flammable. The temperature at which they would burn was 160 degrees Fahrenheit. Humans certainly couldn't survive long enough in this temperature to have all the fungus cooked out of them. After only a month, the cases had risen to 109. The CDC was requiring all hospitals to report any case of it to them directly. I couldn't figure out why the case number was still so low. By this point, Delaware, Connecticut, and Massachusetts were all shaded red. The fungus seemed to have a hard time spreading in major urban centers. For a couple of days, New York City had infected cases, but they all died out, and no more had been reported. The next thing I tried was having the fungus infect a host that was infected with a bacterial or viral infection already. In most cases, regarding the bacterial infections, the fungus would ignore it. However, with very certain bacteria, the fungus was slowed significantly. I reported these findings. In almost all cases with viral infections, the fungus was not affected. However, I did discover one virus that kills the fungal presence in a host. The virus wasn't one that would cause any symptoms for humans. For once in this mess, I finally thought there was a bright light. Any sort of hope. The virus in question was rather hard to obtain samples of, and it generally dwelled on oceanic creatures. I needed to test it on a human who was already infected. So, with a sample in hand, I was flown to Baltimore once again. Once permitted into the hospital, I was led to the ICU where a couple of patients were being held. I gave it to one who was in the early stages of infection. I injected the virus into his arm and hoped. As I was leaving earlier, the researchers said they would try and figure out why it had stopped the fungus, and if any viruses related to it had the same effect. To my knowledge, most mycoviruses didn't actually harm the fungi. Rather, it would keep its host unburdened because they exist solely on fungi. This one was a rather interesting exception, as it would also affect saltwater creatures. Its provisional name was MCV091. I decided to use said mycovirus because I figured out that the fungi spores would be rendered inert in salt water. As for the fungus itself, it significantly slows growth in soil recently saturated with salt water. This was a non-solution however because injecting someone with salt water wasn't viable. 
The fungus growing inside of the patient hadn't yet reached a stage in which it would have been visible growing under their skin. I told the doctors to report to me anything that happened with the patient. After around a week of silence, I was given the news that the patient had survived. He had to have the dead fungi removed, but he survived. This, of course, was all covered up by the government to prevent mass panic once the cases had been dropped to zero. To prevent the spread of land, massive wildfires were started along the East Coast, as well as the spores in the air being set ablaze once the immensely hot smoke surrounded them. It's been three years since then, and no new cases have been reported. All I wonder now is what would have happened if I hadn't taken a shot in the dark with that virus. I would like to take a minute to talk about today's sponsor, HelloFresh. If you're anything like me, sometimes life can get a bit busier than you expect, and that can make simple tasks like heading to the grocery store turn into quite a hassle. That's one of the many reasons that I love HelloFresh and the system they have in place. It allows me to completely cut out the stress and inconvenience of making a grocery list and running down to the store. Instead, they send fresh, pre-measured ingredients straight to my door, so I can just enjoy cooking and get amazing meals in a fraction of the time it would otherwise. And not to mention, it's actually more affordable than taking the time to go pick up ingredients myself. It's a win-win situation. It's also loads of fun browsing and trying the enormous variety of recipes that HelloFresh offers. They've got everything, from quick and easy meals to full-course delicious dinners to handheld breakfasts on the go. There's something for everyone, and it's all made with high-quality, fresh ingredients, sourced directly from growers and delivered from the farm to your door in under a week, contact-free. If you give HelloFresh a try, I guarantee you won't be disappointed. Go to HelloFresh.com Creepscast14 and use code CREEPSCAST14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. Thank you again to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit, for sponsoring today's podcast. I was offered $5,000 to speed date 10 guys. Written by LowBuy1233 You'll be sitting here, Miss Maryland. The director said. He sat me down on a hard wooden chair facing a mahogany table draped in a red tablecloth. Placed atop the tablecloth were ten lit candles. Nine of the candles were arranged in a circle, with the tenth placed in the middle. Across from me was another empty chair. A thick black curtain was strung up behind the table. Presumably, the ten strangers I would be dating were standing behind it. The email had come to me at a bad time in my life. I had just divorced my husband and spent most of my savings buying a new home, 500 miles away in the city. I was struggling to find a job and was extremely in debt. So when I was offered $5,000 to take part in a social experiment... I was ecstatic. 5000 was more than enough money to pay off my debts until I could find a suitable job. The event was hosted by a so-called virtual media company and was intended to display the psychological differences between the two sexes. 
The whole speed date was supposed to be filmed and released to the public via their many social media outlets. I didn't have a problem being on camera, especially since I was being paid so much. In retrospect, I should have had more suspicions about the whole thing. How was this company, which I had never heard of, able to pay $5,000 to some random person with no credentials to sit down and talk with some guys for a few hours? Anyways, the director, who introduced himself as Mr. Monroe, told me that there were three rounds, and for each of the rounds, I would speak for each of the men for a set amount of time. After I had spoken with all of them, I would have to eliminate some of them until I was left with only one, who I would go out with with the next weekend. The shoot seemed legitimate. A professional makeup crew had me dialed up, and the studio was jam-packed with expensive-looking equipment and lighting. About 25 people were milling about behind the set, setting up the cameras and making sure everything was ready to go. After about an hour, everything was set up and we were rolling. I was asked to introduce myself to the camera, which I did, reading off the cue cards one of the crew members was holding up in the back. We only had to do one take of the introduction before the first guy was brought out. The first round was simply titled, Introductions. I had five minutes to speak with each of the contestants. All I needed to do was ask them some basic questions about their life. The first man stepped out from behind the curtain. He was pretty average looking, with long blonde hair and a wispy goatee on his chin. He was wearing khakis and a golf shirt. He approached slowly. I noticed as he walked that he had a lamp. I didn't think much of it, and immediately began talking to him as he sat down across from me. So, what's your name? I asked. There wasn't a script for this part of the video, but I figured I could just ask these same questions to each one of the guys. My name is Ian. He seemed to be staring off into space. Yeah, Ian. Where are you from? I asked. Ian didn't respond. He just kept staring forward towards something in the back of the room. I repeated the question. Where are you from? Ian snapped out of his trance and quickly answered. I'm from Vancouver. Interesting. Did you fly all the way down here? No, I, um, I moved here a few weeks ago. Nice town, nice town. There was definitely something off about Ian. At first, I assumed he was stoned. But as I looked into his eyes, I realized something. He was scared. The look in his eyes was that of a true, primal fear. Maybe he has anxiety, I thought. I continued on. The rest of the interview went pretty similar. I asked him about his job, his family, and his hobbies. He answered every question in the same elusive manner, only giving me brief answers and staring off into space most of the time. After the five minutes was up, the next man stepped out and Ian was ushered away behind the curtain. This man was a little more open. 
He introduced himself as Casper and said that he had lived here his whole life. Though he was definitely an improvement over Ian, he still seemed somewhat on edge, refusing to tell me about his job or family. After Casper was Jonathan, who was the first one to ask me any questions. He was also more open about his past, but when I asked him why he was here, as part of the speed date, he quickly changed the subject. I thought it was a little bit odd, but I chose to just ignore it. It went on like this for about an hour, asking each of the men questions. Some of them were open about their lives. Some of them outright refused to talk about certain things. I figured that was all normal, and that some of them were really just nervous. Finally, we made it to the final contender. He looked as if he hadn't shaved in months, and his clothes were dirty and torn. I was already planning to eliminate him when he sat down. Before I was able to speak, he said loudly, My name is Mason. A little taken aback, I began to speak, but he cut me off. Mason lowered his voice down to a whisper and said, You need to get out of here. I almost asked him what he meant, but the look in his eyes told me that I was not to acknowledge his comment. After that, we had a normal discussion, and at the end of our time, he stood up and walked away. As he made his way back to the black curtain, he looked behind at me and shot me a knowing glance. Now, it was time for elimination. I had to select four men who were no longer to be part of the competition. The producers gave me five minutes to deliberate on who I could remove. I really considered eliminating Ian, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. He seemed so scared, so pitiful, that I felt guilty removing him. I also thought about removing Mason, but his strange behavior intrigued me. I wasn't sure if he was crazy or just trying to scare me, but I couldn't let him go just yet. Eventually, I picked out the four unlucky guys. Among them were Casper. I'll admit, there was no real reason for eliminating him. He just unnerved me a little. The other three were either just unexciting or made me feel too uncomfortable. After I listed the names of the eliminated participants out loud, a staff member escorted them away and out a small door in the back. Another staff member ran to the table and pinched out four of the ten candle flames. As they walked away, I noted the eliminated people's expressions. Some of them looked scared, almost as scared as Ian. Their eyes were wide and they seemed extremely reluctant to leave. Casper seemed more resigned than anything else, as if he was ready for whatever was going to happen next. Part of me wondered what was going on. Why did they all look so terrified? I didn't have time to think about it, because before I knew it, round two had begun. This time, the timer was shortened to three minutes. 
The round's title was Deal Breakers. I would have to discuss with the men these sort of things that turned me off. Ian was first again. This time he looked absolutely mortified. Before he even sat down, I could tell that he was hyperventilating. He dropped into the seat and said, Please, help me. Are you okay? I asked. He looked sick to his stomach. Don't let them take me, he said. I can't, I can't go back. What the heck is going on? It's, it's alright, I said, even though I wasn't sure if it was. I was sure by now that Ian wasn't mentally stable. I also remembered that I wasn't required to take a background check when I had accepted the job. Mr. Monroe recognized my discomfort and motioned to a group of crew members. They quickly ran out on set and dragged him away, literally kicking and screaming. Please, Ian cried. I can't please. Don't let them take me to this hell. I was shaken to say the least. I thought about the people that I had spoken to. They all seemed nervous, as if they had to be very careful with what they said. I wondered where they had come from, or why they were here, and why were they all so afraid of being eliminated. Mr. Monroe gave me some sort of an apology, telling me that Ian was having some sort of medical issue. I nodded, but deep down, I felt that he was lying. I decided, however, for the time being, not to think about it. I only had to keep going for a little while longer, and then I could leave. The next man up was Mason. He sat down in the chair and I asked him what he would see as a deal breaker in a relationship. He began answering, but suddenly grabbed my arm and slammed it onto the table. I cried out in pain. The director called out and Mason immediately let go of my arm. Mr. Monroe beckoned for Mason to go over and talk to him. As Mason spoke with the director, I massaged my arm. It was as I brought it back down into my lap that I realized that I was holding something in my hand. I knew that I hadn't been holding something before. I opened my fist and saw that I was clutching a piece of paper. I realized that Mason had managed to slip it into my hand as he had grabbed my arm. On the scrap of paper was scrawled, You shouldn't have come here. This is all a lie. I looked around. It didn't look like the shoot was a lie. There were a ton of crew members and expensive equipment. It looked like a stereotypical movie set. Maybe he meant I wouldn't get paid the promised amount. But how would he know that? Suddenly, I heard a sound beneath me. I looked down, but I didn't see anything. The sound must have come from beneath me, below somewhere. I heard it again. It sounded like a scream. I froze and my heart stopped. The scream sounded like Casper. I'm leaving you off with a warning. Mr. Monroe said to Mason, Any more inappropriate behavior and you'll be down with Ian. Mason nodded and sat back down across from me. He stared me in the eyes and I looked back. 
A silent understanding passed between us for a moment, until I spoke again. So, Mason, I asked, keeping my eyes on him, what would you say is a deal breaker for you in relationships? Probably if she's too controlling, he responded. I want to be my own man. We chatted for a couple more minutes before our time was up. As he prepared to go behind the curtain, he whispered to me again. The eliminated are dead. The cameras aren't even on. That's when it really sank in. The behavior of the contestants, the note from Mason, something very wrong was happening here. I glanced over at the cameras and noticed that the light that is normally red when the camera was on was not visible. The next guy came out and I began conversing with him. I wasn't really focusing at this point. I just wanted to leave and go home and forget that this ever happened. I chatted with the next couple guys, including Jonathan. Jonathan was my favorite out of all the contestants, but I couldn't stomach the idea that I would be eliminating anybody. If the people that I eliminated were actually killed, I wanted to believe that Mason was lying, but I could tell that he was dead serious when I talked to him. Eventually, the second round was over and it was time for elimination. This time, I only had to eliminate three. Since Ian had been dragged out, that meant I would have to choose between two of them after the final round. Reluctantly, I chose the three guys I wanted to be removed. I felt awful. I couldn't look at them as they were ushered off set. I knew that I had just doomed them to some unimaginable hell, but I had to choose someone. Just like the first round, someone ran out and snuffed out four candles leaving only two lit. This left me with two suitors, Jonathan and Mason. The final round was called The Ideal Date. The first person up was Jonathan. I don't remember the full details of our conversation, just that he said that his dream date was a picnic on the beach, watching the sunset and sipping a bottle of wine. I honestly didn't care. I just wanted to go home. I stammered some cookie-cutter dream date to him, and before long he stood up and headed back to the curtain. He sighed as he did so, and muttered something under his breath. I couldn't tell if he was praying or trying to talk to me, but I didn't even bother listening. Finally, Mason came out and I could see the pure look of sadness on his face as we spoke. He said that he would take me out to a nice restaurant and maybe a movie afterward. We both knew that it didn't matter. We knew what I would do, and there was no stopping it. Our time was up. Mr. Monroe called out from his chair. So, who are you going out with? I sighed. Jonathan. Everybody offset began to clap. As Mason was escorted away, he kept his head down with a look of utter resignation on his face. I couldn't bear to look at him as the door closed and he was brought away. That was it. It was over. I had killed nine men for $5,000. Jonathan ran out. I could see the look of relief in his eyes as he had thanked me over and over. The next couple hours are a complete blur. I remember leaving the studio and driving back home 
I remember collapsing on my couch and falling in and out of sleep for a day afterward. Now that I'm awake and alone, I've been trying to comprehend what I've experienced. There is not a shred of doubt in my mind that the eliminated men were killed. In fact, I'm certain that Mason was right about it all being a lie. I've tried finding the video they were supposedly filming of the speed date online, but I haven't found anything. Nor can I find the media company that I was working for. I've spent the last few days theorizing as to what was going on there. Nothing I've come up with makes any sense. However, one thing's for sure. I recently received a check in the mail from Mr. Nathan Monroe for $5,000. There is an unspoken rule among the local homeless population. Don't be seen past midnight. Written by Sci-Fi Writer 3592 I've been living on the streets for a couple weeks now. Having recently turned 18, my parents decided to surprise me with the boot out the door. I think they were planning this since they found out that I was gay a couple of months ago. My fault for being stupid enough to not get a job and save up beforehand. I cared too much about my academics and focused most of my time on studying. I guess that didn't exactly pan out. My birthday was the day after graduation. I begged and pleaded and even offered to go to conversion therapy, but they didn't budge. I came back home to the locks changed and my stuff packed in a suitcase. I had to unenroll from the university I was accepted to because I could no longer afford it. Even with loans and my scholarships, I couldn't afford the rooming fees and my parents would no longer help me out with filling out anything. I also lost all my friends when they found out about my sexuality, so I couldn't find a couch to crash on. Regardless, I had some money saved up from birthdays and holidays, but that was quickly used up at motel stays. The towns around me were full of dying businesses and declining population, so I decided to use the last of my money and go to a nearby city. I won't go into details as to the exact location out of safety concerns. I guess it doesn't matter because what's happening here is probably happening everywhere else. The first day I arrived, I tried to look for jobs, but who wants to hire a disheveled teenager? I didn't have anything nice to wear for interviews. And besides, the cost of transportation and even hygiene upkeep was hard to maintain. Essentially, I was screwed for the time being. Homeless shelters were all closed. Are they only prioritized women? I soon found myself in a homeless encampment. I couldn't sleep anywhere else. The parks had security roaming and everywhere else. I would find myself being the victim of attacks or even people throwing crap at me for entertainment. I had enough pride not to beg though. I was sure that I could find something soon. I'm not sure how people wound up here, but it was a small makeshift settlement under a highway. Tall rusted steel held up the highway, looming over our tents and garbage that we held on to as mementos as people whizzed by going off into their perfect little lives. It felt like we were stuck in a bubble. As time went on and people advanced, we just stood still, stuck in this dreadful purgatory. 
There were even fences around the area, covered with blue tarp, hiding away our shame from the rest of the city. I was still luckier than most of the people around me, though. I still had all my senses, and didn't have any chronic conditions, nor any drug addictions. Life hadn't beaten me down that path yet. The first night I spent in this area, I was getting ready to settle in for the night, pulling myself up on one of the bridge bases in the center of the encampment, when I heard rustling from all around me. It was as if everyone had the sudden idea of hiding in their tents. I looked around me, all alarmed. Could it be the cops? Naked, you got somewhere to stay. I heard a man's rough voice ask before coughing violently. I'm sorry, I replied. Do you need a tent to stay in? I got extra room in here if you want. He replied while gesturing at his small, dirty tent. It looked like it could barely hold one person, let alone two. I think I'm... Nathan, the boy is fine. A bundled-up woman with dirt streaks on her face appeared out of nowhere, pushing me away from him. Hon, you shouldn't be here. Are you sure you have nowhere else to go? She whispered. No, why? What's going on? I asked, quite alarmed. She shifted her gaze and pushed me towards her tent. It was much larger than Nathan's. Its bright yellow plastic, covering which had seen better days, was now held together by duct tape. Listen, kid. There's a couple rules that you have to follow. You can stay here, but you need to know them by heart. Follow? She asked in a hurried tone. I merely nodded as I looked around. The tent had a small cot, an oil lamp, and there was a pile of clothing in the corner next to a shopping cart. It might not have been much, but it was way better than being out on the streets empty-handed. Rule 1. They only come out when the sun sets. They go back into hiding when dawn breaks. Her worried tone was getting a bit harsh. Nothing made sense. Who is them? I tried to ask who they were, but I could tell she wouldn't answer until she had finished. Rule 2. Do not let them know of your presence. You're done if you do. And last rule. Whatever you hear or see, do not go out. Even if it's your friend or family member's voices screaming for help. Do you understand me? She said, trying to put up a brave front. But I could tell she was scared as she could ever be. Okay, I got the rules, but... Who are they? I asked, trying to get something out of her. Being kept in the dark about anything like this just wouldn't put my mind at ease. We can talk about it tomorrow, but tonight you need to rest. In a couple of hours, it'll be midnight and we should both be asleep by then. She hastily said while putting on a bunch of blankets on a sleeping bag. I gently smiled and began to make my way into the sleeping bag. As much as I wanted answers, I was exhausted from the entire day. I knew that I had to keep my guard up in case she wanted to hurt me, but somehow her presence made me feel safe. She seemed so genuine, friendly, and warm. All qualities that I never saw in my own mother. I closed my eyes for a second and before I knew it, I was in the depths of the dark abyss known as sleep. I'm not sure what time it was when the barking and cries of dogs startled me awake. I laid in the sleeping bag, trying to make sense of my surroundings. The inside of the tent was dark, but because of the flimsy plastic, I could see the silhouette of objects outside. 
The streetlights casted an eerie glow onto everything. I could feel it before I heard or even saw it. I'm not even sure how, but I felt my fight-or-flight reaction kick in. Every hair on my body rose and I could feel this tension in the air, like lightning before it struck. The air turned putrid with the smell of decay and whines of all the animals got louder. I wanted to close my eyes, but I couldn't help but look to see what it was. I looked over to my right and saw the silhouette of a hunched-over person. There was something extremely wrong about it, though. Its arms were down to its feet, and I could see the protruding bones of its back. It had long, messy hair and a large dog-like snout for a nose. I thought maybe the distance was distorting its shadow, but something about it was so unnerving, I wanted to close my eyes and go back home. It wandered away for a short while, but my fear still lingered throughout the night. I didn't sleep a bit, and I waited until the woman got up. Morning, kid, she said with a smile while getting up. I never got your name, I said while looking down at the floor. The name's Sandra. What's yours? Matthew, I whispered. I saw something last night. She got silent and made a serious face. She started getting off the cot and made her way to a table, grabbing a water bottle for me before taking one for herself. What did this one look like? She took a sip before asking, What do you mean this one? There are more? I'm gonna be honest, kid. I don't know what they are. They started coming out of the sewers a couple months back, right after the forest fires. From what I've seen, the local authorities know about them, but they can't do much about it. They only come out at night. I think they're getting stronger, though. They never came close to this area, but they must be getting more comfortable around people. What do they do? I don't know, and I don't want to know. All I know is that noise attracts them. They don't do much when you're asleep. So why are there still people around this area? Shouldn't we leave? And go where? This is the only area of the city where the cops don't care. They basically rounded us up and dropped us here. Besides, it wouldn't matter anyways. Her voice got lower with that last part. What do you mean? I asked. Rumor is, those things are everywhere. I met folks that encountered them from all over the country. Whatever's happening, it ain't just here. Do people try to fight them? I think old Jacob heard of a man who shot one several times, but it wouldn't go down. She almost whispered. Do you... I think that's enough talk for now. They can hear when you talk about them. I don't want any more talk about this. Not looking for trouble. Here, eat up. I opened a can of food. It ain't much, but it'll get your belly full for a day. She asked before, essentially interrogating me on my life story. That night, I tried to sleep, but once again, I found myself wondering about what those creatures could be. Right as I was about to close my eyes, I felt it. That static in the air and the smell of decay. The cries of dogs filled the air. Except this time, I heard a dog bark right outside of the tent. Rudolph, get back here, boy. I heard a man yell as quietly as he could. From the shadows, I could see the dog run up in front of our tent, barking at a shadowy figure. It was taller than the one last night, but it had the same long bony arms that reached down to its knees, 
and ended in sharp, curled-up talons. It used it to snatch up the dog and rip it in half, silencing the dog's barks with a loud, horrible whimper and splattering the plastic of our tent with a dark liquid. Rudolph! The man cried out, grabbing some sort of stick and hitting it with his might, but the figure merely grabbed him by the throat and pushed him against the wall of our tent, ripping through, causing both of them to fall right over on top of me. I just sat there in complete shock, trying to register what was happening. All I heard was yelling from both Sandra and the man that was being held on by the creature. Its bald head was splattered with blood. Its eyes were completely icy and dead, and it had a twisted smile that revealed shark-like teeth drenched in blood. It opened its mouth and a large black tongue covered in small black spikes slithered out, going down to the man's throat. The man's screams quickly turned into a sick, gurgling noise as the thing's tongue reached further and further into his throat. Blood splattered all over, and I felt some wet substance hit my face. I felt a pressure around my arm and I was lunged to my side. I tried to scream but felt a hand wrap against my mouth. It was Sandra. Only she was silently hushing me while pulling me aside from it. We ran out into the pitch black of the night, running through the labyrinth of tents full of silent yet terrified bystanders. Eventually, we reached a corner of the encampment, which contained a rusty, broken-down car covered in blue plastic tarps. She motioned for me to crawl underneath it while trying to cover me with the tarp. Quickly, kid. We don't have all day. Just stand her there and be silent. No matter what you hear, do not come out. Not even if it's my voice. Just wait until the sun comes up. She whispered rapidly. I tried to get a glimpse between a crack of the tarp, but I could barely make out anything other than the outlines of Sandra. She seemed to grab a nearby pipe and held it against her in a defensive maneuver. A raspy, crackly, yet animalistic voice screamed out of the darkness. It sounded as if someone was playing a recording of that dead man's last words, and combined it with that of an animal just learning to speak. Rudolph. It found us. It pranced on all fours and walked towards our area. Its naked body was now drenched in red liquid, dripping from it like rain. Sandra tried to hit it with a pipe, but immediately grabbed it with its large claws and raised her up with the other one by the throat, digging into her throat slightly. She tried kicking and wriggling out, but it opened its mouth and stuck its spiny black tongue down into her throat as well. I closed my eyes and covered my mouth to avoid making a sound. After a while, I stopped hearing the sound of a stifled screaming and gurgling, but I was too scared to open my eyes. I heard its wet footsteps crawl over to me, but I was too scared to look. I merely closed my eyes and held my breath so it didn't hear me. Rudolph. It hissed in that disgusting, inhuman voice. I heard the metal of the car bend and creak as that thing crawled on top of it. I laid there on the cold concrete for what must have been hours, counting down the seconds before the sun rose. It must have been around dusk when I finally heard that thing make its way off the car and into the darkness that was being lit up by the dim orange cast in the distance. I peeked through the tarp to make sure it was leaving, and it slightly turned around and made direct eye contact with me. Its blood-coated face grinned slightly, 
barely revealing the sharp edges of its teeth, but it merely walked away proudly like a predator after a satisfying hunt. I laid there until I felt the heat of the sun boil the concrete into a smoldering rock burning my skin, which forced me to get off it. I walked back into the direction of the tents, looking around to see the inhabitants crowding around the front entrance of the encampment. There was a large group of police officers and men in black suits pushing away everyone. Stay back. Nothing to see here. Go back into your tents. A burly old man yelled into a loudspeaker as he motioned his officers to step forward. Sandra's tent was being sealed off in yellow tape, and several detectives stood all around it. The cops stood outside, motioning bystanders to move out of the way while muttering under their breath. Dang, another one? Hey, you think those suits know something about what is doing this? I bet it's some Jack the Ripper copycat. Nah, I bet it's aliens. They snorted and chuckled to themselves before a barely one spotted me in the crowd. Hey, that one has blood on his face. Kid, stop right there. I felt like a deer in headlights and I stumbled backwards looking for a way out. I was not going to go to jail. I knew they were going to pin this on me. I heard shots behind me and a bystander fell near me. I didn't get a chance to see who it was before. I felt a pressure run into me causing the both of us to stumble on the floor. It was one of the cops putting pressure on my arm and another one putting handcuffs on me. They were trying to drag me away before one of the men in suits stepped up. He's under our custody now. Thanks, boys, but we'll take it from here. He remained expressionless during the entire ordeal. Screw you, we caught him, he's ours. You don't even have jurisdiction here. One of the men tried to shove me next to his side. I think that should be the least of your concerns. You should be more occupied learning to manage such situations. And you want us to trust you with such a vital witness. I could hear these screams and chaos unfold around us. The cop huffed and left, throwing around curses left and right, leaving me all alone with him. I looked up at him and noticed that he was completely bald. His skin was so clear and white that I could see every vein and ligament. It was almost translucent. I couldn't see his eyes though, they were obscured by the thick black frames of his sunglasses. We're going to take you down into our headquarters and we're going to talk. Is that okay? He asked, not caring about the blood splatter on my face. We left the scene in a black van, along with the other suits, and I tried to look out to see where we would be going, but the windows were so tinted that I couldn't see through them. Instead, I sat in silence with the suit who was too busy looking through his laptop. From the reflection of his glasses, I could see that he was analyzing other crime scenes. I tried to squint to get a better view without him noticing, but I guess he caught on because he turned his laptop for me to get a better view. Better? He asked, forming a slight, creepy smile. Sorry, I apologized while leaning a bit down into my seat. From the brief glimpse, I couldn't recognize the images on his laptop. The bodies were torn in half. They weren't anything like last night, though. It was revolting, and it left a chill down to my core. We arrived at this building sometime later. I can't tell you much about it, simply because they put a black sack over my head. But I can tell you that the walk was quite long, the sound was muffled, and the air was still almost like we were underground. When they took it off, I could see that I was in a completely empty room, just a chair and a table with him and I.
Alright, Matthew, I have you here as unemployed and your current home address is at my parents' house. Kind of a long way from home, don't you think? He smirked. Maya was kicked out for being gay. I don't know how I moved to the city, hoping to get a job. I replied honestly. Well, that's no good. I think we can form some sort of arrangement. I just need you to help me in return. What do you mean? I asked, leaning my hands forward. I just need you to tell me everything you saw last night in perfect detail. Everything you can remember. He leaned back in his chair and put his feet up on the table. I nodded and began to tell him everything I saw and heard, down to the events right before they had caught me. That's interesting. Sandra barely knew you and yet she still sacrificed her life for you. Tell me, do you miss her? I blinked in confusion. I just told him some weird stuff went down. And he's asking me about the dumbest stuff. Who was this guy? That's none of your concern. Listen, kid, we know about them. We just don't know why they're all coming out. It's like something is scaring them from the underground. Or maybe it's the recent fires, who knows. You're fine as long as you stay away from those areas. The dirty, grimy areas full of humanities at lowest of the low. Those things are everywhere, but it's not even the least of our concerns. There's much more to fear as a human. I sat in silence, trying to digest everything this guy was telling me. I wanted to write him off as a lunatic, but I knew he was telling the truth. Why are you telling me this? I asked, curious as to why he would even tell me a bit of the truth. It seemed weird to tell some random kid off the street some secrets of the government. We don't work for the government. I don't know. Did you not want to know? I honestly don't care. Do with the information as you will. It's not like anyone will ever believe you. Our organization is scrubbing the evidence as we speak, and you will be closely monitored. I'm always curious as to the reactions of those who know. Who knows, maybe you'll even come to work with us. He replied joyfully while clasping at his hands like a child getting a birthday present. Things got a little hazy after that. I remember waking up in a hotel room with a new phone and a laptop along with instructions on how to access my new bank account. They gave me enough money to live carefree for a couple of years. I'm not sure why I'm writing this. I guess I just want to feel something other than the numb feeling that's crawled up to my soul ever since everything went down. What could he have meant that there were worse things to fear? I'm paid to witness terrible things. Written by Veristal. Just stand. Here we go. Raphael pointed at a spot in the grass a few feet off the sidewalk. Technically, it was probably the yard of the house behind us, but it was a side yard and close enough to the street that I doubted anyone would complain. Still, I wasn't sure what he was pointing at until I stepped closer and saw something silver glinting among the thick grass. I looked back up at him questioningly. So I stand there, and do I pick that up? He nodded. Yeah, the witness has to be the one to pick it up. It's one of the rules. His eyes skittered back and forth between me and the patch of grass. His face lined with tension as he flapped his hand in my direction. Hurry, and do it if you're going to do it. 
I frowned and bent down, picking up what I now saw was a silver coin, though not a kind I was familiar with. It was smooth on one side, and on the other there was a large engraved eye, surrounded by lines that radiated a crisscrossed web to the edges of these small metal discs. Running my thumb over the ridges, I looked up at him as I rose. So what? Now I stand here and wait for something to happen. Raphael shrugged. Pretty much. A lot of times. He glanced across the street and then turned back to me. Lots of times and nothing happens. You just stand in the spot for two hours and at the end of the two hours you go home. You'll find a black journal and a pen sitting outside of your door. Before you go in, you write down a description of what you saw during your time out here. It can be long or short, it doesn't matter. It can just say, I stood for two hours and nothing happened. If that's the truth. Just as long as you write something down. When you're done writing it down, put the book and the pen back where you found them and go inside. They'll be gone before the next morning. And around noon that same day, you'll find an envelope at your door. One thousand bucks, a cash. I grinned. You've told me this ten times and it still sounds too good to be true. I felt my smile slip. You sure this isn't anything illegal? He grimaced. Look, you're the one that kept bugging me about getting you into it. Remember, I told you not to told you that it's not as easy as it sounds. I frowned at him. Yeah, you keep saying that, but you won't say why it isn't easy. Unless your lazy butt just minds standing for a couple of hours. For a thousand bucks, I can stand a lot longer than that. When he didn't smile or laugh, I went on. But seriously, I thought you were just messing with me. Or maybe that there is something you're not telling me. I held his eye. So, is there? He shook his head as he dropped his gaze. No, nothing that I'm allowed to tell. That's a part of the rules. If you bring someone new in, you can show them where to go and what to do the first time, but that's it. No talking about what you've seen or done. When he looked back up at me, his gaze was stony. And I know I've told you this before too, but it's worth repeating, now that you've started. You do not stop until a full two hours have passed. No walking around, no going to the bathroom or falling asleep. You have to stay here the full time, no matter what. And you have to watch. Well, whatever there is to watch. I raised my eyebrow. Dude, you're starting to freak me out being all sketchy acting about it. If this is some kind of joke you and Tori are pulling, I'll kick your butt. I tried to laugh, but it sounded hollow and thin in my ears. Raphael's eyes widened slightly. It's not a joke, you understand. You want it in it, and now you're in it. So long as you take it serious and follow the rules, you'll be okay. He gave me a smile that looked forest. Make good money, too. Glancing back across the street, he started edging toward his car. 
So, you cool? I don't know I should stay much longer, but I want to make sure that you're okay before I go. Ignoring the twisting in my belly, I gave him a thumbs up as I started my phone's two-hour timer. I'm cool, I'll text you later. He nodded and ducked into his car, and moments later, he was gone. I felt very alone and exposed now that the distraction of talking was gone. It wasn't a bad neighborhood. The houses were older and a bit run down, but it seemed quiet enough. I had only seen a couple of people drive by while we were talking, and after Raphael left, it was probably half an hour before another car had passed by. The entire two hours, my mind kept racing, torn between fear that this all really was a practical joke, and that it was not only real, but that Raphael's weirdness wasn't just him being weird, but him, well, him being scared. But that was silly. I had known him and his sister Tori since the fifth grade, and I'd never known him to get really scared or freaked out about anything. Probably just nervous about vouching for me and was afraid if I messed up, it would mess up his job too. And there was no denying it was a weird job. Inherently sketchy. Maybe some twisted weirdo with a lot of money. Or someone that wanted to harass someone without having to be around themselves. My imagination had run wild since Raphael had left the job slip a couple of weeks earlier. That if all I had to do was stand here and watch the neighborhood crawl by, what was the harm? And if some nut wanted to pay big money for it, who was I to refuse? My other worry was that it was just a way to lure someone out somewhere so they could be taken or killed or something. But Raphael had been doing it for like three months, and the guy that he had heard about it from had done it for over a year, a couple of states over so it had to be wild if not legit, at least not too dangerous for the people getting paid. And that all made sense, sure, but it still got harder to stay out there as the twilight deepened into night. I wasn't even sure what I was supposed to be looking for or watching, so I just periodically turned and looked this way and that, my eyes finding the pools of light from the occasional street lamp or the glow of some lit window or door. Was I missing something? I didn't know what. But why have me hang out here for two hours unless something was going to? I let out a short yelp as my phone's timer went off. My two hours were up. That was stupid easy, and the book was there like you said when I got home tonight. Yeah, so you filled it out and left it. Yeah, of course. Though I don't know how I feel about you giving my address out to strangers. As long as I get paid though, right? I didn't. You didn't get paid? Dude, what the heck? No, I didn't think about it before, but I didn't tell anyone where you lived. Okay, back to being creepy. I just better have a fat envelope waiting for me tomorrow. Or your donkey emoticon is a lawn emoticon. They did pay, just like he said. And a week later, I found another envelope with a new time and location, as well as a photo of the spot that I was supposed to stand in. Raphael said it was always considered an invitation, not an order. I didn't, he stressed, 
have to keep doing it if I didn't want to. But of course I did. Over the next month, I did it two more times. Once at the edge of a shopping center parking lot early one Sunday morning, and the other time outside a library across town until midnight. I kept waiting for something to happen. Something noteworthy to report or give me a clue as to what the purpose of all this was. But it was also ordinary. People coming and going. Some of them giving me odd looks as they passed by. As though they wondered what the strange girl was doing just standing there watching as they came and went. It wasn't until the third time that I actually saw something kind of interesting. I was posted up outside a pizzeria when a kid about my age came storming out wearing a green apron covered in white powder. He made it a few steps into the parking lot before seeming to think better of it and turning around. I had the thought that maybe he had quit, and now he was going to go back to say that he was just kidding, but no. Instead, he went over to a gumball machine outside the door that he had exited. Picking it up, I saw the cord standing out in his neck as he screamed in the direction of whoever was inside to hear. Screw you, Brian. And with that, he swung the gumball machine from its base, like he was batting for a home run. Except instead of hitting a fast pitch, he slammed it into the restaurant's front plate glass window, shattering it. He stared with some mixture of what looked like pride and surprise, before dropping the machine and running for his car to make his escape from the lot. Thirty minutes later, police pulled up, and much to my dread, they headed my way after talking to some guy in a red pizza shirt. Brian, if I had to guess. They asked me if I had been out there when everything had happened. I shrugged and told them that I had been out there for a while, but I hadn't seen anything. The female officer frowned at this and told me she didn't see how I didn't notice a man breaking a window and screaming 20 yards away. I just stared at her and shrugged. And that's when she started asking why exactly I was out there. Was I aware that there was a city ordinance against loitering? I explained to her that I was waiting for a friend. And that's when my phone's timer went off. And telling the officers that I was tired of waiting for my friend to show up, I turned to head back to my car. The woman cop wanted to stop me, but the other officer gave her a forbidding look and thanked me for my time. Nodding, I walked up to my car and got in, blood still thundering in my ears. What was that? Me just lying to the cops like it was nothing. I mean, I knew I wasn't supposed to tell anyone what I saw. Those were the rules, after all. But I had never even talked to a cop before except for the one speeding ticket that I had gotten, and I had almost broken down crying then. Now I was lying to them and walking off like it was nothing. Odd as it may sound, the whole experience was weirdly empowering. I didn't feel guilty about not helping out and being honest. I was being loyal to my job and its rules, and that was more important. Plus, if I could keep doing a good job, who knew how long this money could last? Maybe I could do it forever. Then three weeks later, I watched a family burn to death. 
I was standing in the grass of an empty lot on the last street of a largely empty neighborhood. This was a new place, divided into dozens of lots and populated with a handful of houses on each of its three winding roads. I had seen a few families coming home as I drove in, but the last street was also the least developed, and so there were only two houses across from me and none on my side. Even those two houses seemed empty, with no people or cars around, just tall grass and patches of dirt and well, me, standing awkwardly while I waited for my timer to tick down and hoping that no neighbor or a rent-a-cop came up and hassled me for hanging out. I was already an hour in when I saw an orange glow in the front windows of the closest house. At first, I thought it was just a light from a TV or a lamp, made soft and shifting by the long white curtains hung there, but then the curtains caught. Bright tongues of flame crawling up them quickly, even as I noticed a flare of light from one of the upstairs windows. The house was burning. I, I needed to do something. Call 911 or something. But you can't tell anyone what you've seen. It's the rule. But if someone's house is burning, shouldn't I break the rules? It seemed like the simplest question in the world. And yet something in me still hesitated. Someone else would notice soon, right? Or there was some alarm inside that would robocall for help. A part of me recoiled at my thought processes, at stalling while I debated calling for help. But it had a small, meek voice. The louder voice told me that I had made a promise by picking up that coin, and I had to honor that. At the very least, I could wait a few. I puffed out a sigh of relief as I heard the sirens in the distance. A couple of minutes later, two fire trucks pulled up. The firemen immediately went to work, some of them setting them poses while others went to the house and started looking in the windows and calling for anyone who might be inside. They must have heard something, because suddenly, they began frantically breaking down the front door with axes. Black smoke boiled out, followed by a dim view of what lay beyond the door. It was all fire and ashes. Though I thought for a moment that I saw something moving there. It was then that the smell reached me. The thick and dusty scent of ashes mixed with the spikier smells of fire. And something almost sickeningly sweet. One of the firemen had broken out one of the windows upstairs. And was yelling back down. Two upstairs. Burned and no response. One of the axemen at the front door cursed and then said, There is another body in the stairs. Hard in my throat, I could barely breathe. What if I could have helped them, or called and gotten someone there quicker? It had only been a matter of minutes between when I first saw the fire and the trucks arriving. But how many? Two, five. How much of a difference could it have made? And what was wrong with me that I didn't even... It's a lovely smell, isn't it? The voice was rough and oily in my ear, but when I recoiled, it wasn't just from the shock or the sound of it. It was the breath that came with it, cold and fetid, with that same underlying sweetness that I'd already been smelling since they had broke down the door. As I pulled away, I turned to find who was talking to me, but there was no one there. 
I almost lost my balance and fell over, but as I recovered, I turned all the way around, looking in every direction. There was no sign of anyone anywhere close by. Just then, a slimy chuckle slid out of the twilight air next to me. But if you get a little taste... This was followed by a pleasurable groan, and what might have been the smacking of lips somewhere above me and to my right. Forgetting everything else in my terror, I started to back away. I dug into my pocket for my car keys, and that's when I felt the coin that I had put there. I, I couldn't just leave, could I? But how could I stay? Something was out there with me and... My phone jumped to my pocket as the timer went off. Tears sprang to my eyes. Oh, thank you, God. Not looking back, I ran to my car and jumped in. It was three blocks before I pulled over and tried to calm down. To rationalize what I had seen and heard. But it didn't work. I was freaked right the heck out and I needed to talk to Raphael. Find out what he had gotten me into. I just got done with a watching job. Some really freaky stuff happened. Don't tell me any details. Remember the rules. Yeah, but this was really bad. I just need to talk to someone about it. No, you don't. You need to keep quiet and take your money when it comes. You did stay the whole two hours, right? Sure, yeah, I did. Can you at least tell me if you've ever had something bad happen on one of these things? Like people die bad. Look, no, I can't, obviously. That's still telling, but are you okay? Are you hurt? Yeah, I mean, I'm not physically hurt or something. Okay, good. So go home, write it down, and then let it go. And if it bothers you that much, you don't have to do it again, okay? Sure, I guess so. I got paid the next day as usual, but I promised myself that I was done after that. I even ignored the first new envelope that I received. But when the second one came the following week, I couldn't help but open it. I told myself it was just about the money, but I think even then I knew that that wasn't entirely true. I had been restless and unhappy not doing it anymore, and scared that I might not get another chance. I tried calling Raphael a couple of times to ask more questions, but he never answered anymore. And when I texted, he always texted back that he was busy and we would talk later. The day I got the second envelope, he finally called. Told me that he was sorry that he had been distant. But he was just trying to give me some time to decompress and get over whatever I had seen before we talked too much. If for no other reason than to reduce the risk that I would try to tell him what I had seen despite the rules. He told me that he was sorry he had introduced me to the job in the first place. But he was glad that I was done with it, and I felt a hard smile go across my face as I cut him off. I don't know that I'm done. I got another envelope today. Another? Kim, let it go. I'm thinking about getting out myself, before it's too late. Too late for what? What are you talking about? I thought you could quit whenever you wanted. He was quiet for a moment, and when he spoke again, his voice was soft and thin. Usually, usually, yeah. 
But as you get into it, there are certain obligations. Me vouching for you and bringing you in. Look, it's not just you that is a problem if you mess up, okay? So just stay away from it and we'll both be better off. Okay. Oh, I hung up. Screw him. I wasn't messing anything up. I wasn't giving up this kind of easy money either. Opening my map app, I started tracking down where the new job wanted me to go. I was standing at the edge of a playground in the middle of the night. The distant orange lights made the jungle gym and seesaws look like a forest of shadowy spiders at one end. And the other end was dominated with a better lit but no less desolate sandbox. My stomach was already tight. Something was wrong with this place. Either that or it was about to be. It was something in the air. A sour electricity that made the hairs on my arms stand on end. It made me jump at the slightest rustling from a distant tree or bush. But still, I had already picked up the coin. It had already been, um, only 20 minutes, but that was a sixth of the way done. And now, was that woman bringing her little kid to the playground at two in the morning? Apparently so. As I quietly watched, a young woman watched her little toddler boy over to the sandbox and told him to play. When she turned back, her eyes found mine immediately. Are you the whistler? My pulse started pounding as I shook my head. I was going to just ignore her and hope that she got the hint. But then I heard myself speaking in a loud, clear voice. I am the witness. She nodded. And at this angle, I could see how young she looked. How scared. I almost offered something more. But then a voice called out behind me. I she looked past me and her face fell further turning around I saw an old man his head festooned with wisps of grey hair above a long red overcoat draped across broad thin shoulders he started walking to meet her never even glancing in my direction as he passed but when he reached the girl he offered a slight bow do you bring an offering? The girl nodded, her face shining with tears now. I, I do. We, we call him Jenkins. The man looked at the little boy half-heartedly, digging at a hole in the sand nearby. This one is your child. Yes. He cut his eyes back to her sharply. And this is your offering. She paled as she began to nod frantically. Yeah, they said that would be enough. What you wanted. I, if, if I need to give you something. No. He raised his hand to silence her, even as he began walking past her to the boy. This will suffice. You will have what you wish. The man was reaching into a coat pocket to pull out what looked like a large silver egg. So you'll fix Timothy's heart. I sucked in a breath as the man whipped his head back toward her. 
his mouth a hard snarl above eyes that seemed to flash in the lamplight. You will have what you wish. And then, just as fast, he turned back to the boy at his feet and slammed the metal egg into the side of his skull. I let out a small scream as the boy fell over limply, his face buried in the sand. I wanted to run, either forward to help the boy or just somewhere else so I could get help. But something stopped me. I still had over an hour left. I couldn't move from this spot yet. And even if I did, I couldn't tell anyone what I had seen. Maybe I could get that boy medical help though, if I kept it vague and... Now the man was setting the egg down next to the boy and stepping back. He never looked in my direction, even when I screamed. And now he only had eyes for the egg. Though, I was starting to see why. It was shifting and splitting. Its moonlight shell segmenting into a hundred, then a thousand smaller pieces, as something unfurled from inside. I could lie and say that I didn't see it well, and it's true that I don't remember much of what it looked like, but I think it's just my brain couldn't make sense of what I was seeing. It was all moving parts and small tendrils that became larger as they latched onto the boy's head curling into his ears and wrapping around his throat, stifling a whimper. I watched as the thing began to tuck the poor little boy under the playground stand, witnessed as the boy came to, just as his eyes went below the surface. He screamed. The sound was a terrible, undulating wail of pure terror and pain, and his small arms and legs kicked up fans of dirt as he got pulled deeper into some impossible hole. I had to do something. I did have to do something, didn't I? As if hearing my own thoughts, the man's gleaming eyes cut to my own, and something in that terrible gaze frightened me even more than the half-submerged squealing child at his feet. His lips twisted sharply as he watched me, his eyes never leaving, even when he put a leather shoe on the child's back and shoved him deeper into wherever that monster was taking him. Face unreadable, he extended a hand to me silently, though I wasn't sure if it was a greeting, an offering of his own, or something more sinister. Perhaps it was that final gesture or maybe everything that had been building that night, and those before it, but something broke in me then. And when I started running, I didn't stop until I got home and had the door locked behind me. It was as I turned the lights that my phone's timer began to buzz. There was no journal that night, and no money the next day, and that was fine with me. I was done, for real this time. Whatever this was, I never wanted to be near it again. It was days later before I even tried calling Raphael. I wasn't going to tell him any details, but I did want to encourage him to get out too. Whatever being a witness really was, however much it paid, it wasn't worth our souls. He didn't answer. After three days of trying, I called Tori, but she hadn't heard from him either. That was yesterday, 
and today I woke up determined to go out and find him. Turns out that I didn't have far to go. When I opened my front door, Raphael was across the street, just standing there. I called to him and waved, but he just stared at me. He wasn't there to talk. He was there to bear witness. I closed my door back and started writing this down. It's taken me over an hour and he's still out there. I'm afraid I know what that means. Raphael's time is almost up. And so is mine. Something is happening in the trash of the Pacific Ocean. Written by Sea Fall Nevermore. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch seems to be changing, but not in a good way. It's not because we've gotten more eco-friendly. Years ago, I volunteered to help out on a cleanup expedition. I was fresh out of college and came from a family just rich enough to let me put off seeking a job for a few years. There was one certified marine biologist and her group of trainees, along with two seasoned oceanographers. And then there were us volunteers. We were confined to the lower decks. The crew of the trolley was an almost stereotypically salty group who liked getting paid, but hated dealing with a group of mostly college-aged eco-warriors. I didn't blame them. Caring about the ocean honestly came second to me. I was there because I thought the marine biologist was hot. She was in her early 30s and she already taught at university. I took one of her classes about deep sea ecology and I loved it. But mostly, I loved staring at her. I was just a weirdo who was hot for teacher at this point. She was married of course, but that didn't stop some small army of 20-something dudes, myself included, from trying to hit on her. But anyway, she put together this expedition with her friends and oceanography. The university thought this ocean cleanup would be a great way to gain goodwill, and all they had to do was provide some eager students with some experience. For those who don't know, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is exactly what it sounds like. Humans dumping garbage, primarily plastics, into the oceans cause this. Trash from nations all over the Pacific get caught in those underwater currents which carried it around. Until a lot of it gets caught up in this one spot, where the current meets up, in a sort of trash vortex, which is currently twice the size of Texas and growing. It's not a trash island though. A lot of the trash sinks to the bottom. The rest just turns the water soupy. Most of it is floating plastics. There is debris from Japan to the US. It's bad enough for sea life as it is. But all that plastic is dissolving and becoming microplastics, which flow all over and poison everything. 
fish eat or inhale them. Other things eat the fish, including us. It's all a very bad cycle. There have been a few efforts to clean the patch up, but it's an uphill battle. Ours was just a small volunteer group of college kids. All we were doing was hauling mounds of trash aboard that we planned to sort through and catalog. My professor and the other people were also taking tests of some sort. I chatted up some other students, only pretending to care. Well, half pretending to be fair to myself. We sorted through this weird muck. The occasional disgusting carcass, plastics, trash, and seaweeds for a few days. One evening, I snuck above deck because I heard the professor was performing a dive for something, and I was hoping to catch a look. By the time that I made it, she was done with her dive and discussing something with the crew of the ship and the oceanographers. I sat there drooling over her until her words finally cut through the haze. Something was moving within the mass. Something big. When could a whale have gotten caught up in it? I don't think it was anything like that. I'm telling you, something covered in trash reached for me. That doesn't sound possible, but we've gotten some very strange readings. Some sort of biological marker. Something warm in all the trash. What could it be? What could survive? I don't know, but I'm not sure this expedition was safe. We were all cut off when the entire boat lurched forward. Everyone, from the seasoned sailor to the idiot college kid, was knocked off their feet from the sheer force. Myself, who had been pretending to be a sailor and casually leaning on the railing so I could steal more side glances, was dang near thrown overboard. The railing bruised my chest and I scrambled to grab something before I tumbled over. I had managed to entangle myself in some rigging and fishing nets before the rest of me tumbled right over the edge. I held tight even after I smacked into the metal hull of the ship. I immediately began screaming for help. My professor got to me first, struggling to her feet and racing to grab a hold of my arm. A few sailors were right behind her. Soon, I was safe from falling, but still dangling over the side of the ship. I risked a look down into the waters, there was something beyond these soupy plastics. Something moving. It was this massive thing that I could barely see, as its color matched the seas around it. It was hard to get a good reading on just how big it was, just because the water was murky, the daylight was fading, and I was a bit panicked at the time. As I watched, it descended into the murk, I think a whale hit us, I called, as these sailors and my professor worked to drag me aboard. Ain't no whales around here this time of year, replied one of the sailors. I saw something under us too. It looked big. What else could it have been? I was momentarily distracted. The professor pulled me aboard in such a way. 
Let's just say that I was happy where my eyes ended up. I looked up at her. She looked pale. She whispered something to me. I think it was. It's too big to be a whale. She snapped out of it and glared down at me. No volunteers above deck. Get downstairs now. I didn't argue. The whole ship was in disarray. I helped clean up spilled equipment, food, and people for hours. I overheard the professor talking to her colleagues. This isn't safe. If this was an animal, it couldn't have been. It moved on its own. Whatever. This wasn't safe. We need to get the kids and the volunteers back home. We should just run tests on all these samples that we've collected and called a day. So, the next morning, the boat's crew turned us around and started the journey back home. My professor and the oceanographers were interested in all the muck that we had collected, as well as the various bone samples. I heard them say something about excretions. Mew, have we been sifting through whale poop? Asked one girl. Someone else used the words stomach lining and digestive enzyme. What the heck is all this digestive system talk doing around piles of plastic and trash? Days later, we were back on the shore. The students got their credits. The university got to say in ads that they offered oceanography excursions and cared very deeply about the sea. And I got to hang out around my professor and some other ladies. I almost stopped thinking about everything and went back to my normal life. That all happened four years ago. I could have stopped caring then. But something about the night of my professor's dive, about her words, and the thing that I saw in the water when I almost went overboard, it kept coming back to me. So, I've been keeping an eye on the data about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. On the surface, it looks like the patch has grown. But my old professor has been posting her findings. The mass itself is growing, but the plastic content, that mysteriously seems to be decreasing in some way or another. I've been going over what I can remember. People who understand marine biology more than I think there was way too much organic matter within the mass. They thought some of it was plastic excretion and some of it was something like stomach lining. I remember one of my professor's lessons. Some sea animals like starfish hunt by expelling their stomachs using it to grab food and pulling it back in to digest it. I know how it sounds. It sounds like I'm implying some sort of mutant starfish monster is eating the plastic. At first I thought, great. Nature mutated us a creature to help solve the plastic problem, right? But the whole thing has me uneasy. I sent my professor a message asking if my theory about plastic eating animals could possibly be true. To my surprise, I got a reply. A very detailed, cryptic reply. I shouldn't be answering you. Several organizations and governments have sworn me to secrecy. But I'm scared. 
I came to the same conclusion. Some friends of mine collected data from the other part of the patch near the Philippines. They found the same biological marker within the organic compounds they collected. If there's some new species, it's present all throughout the garbage spread. The excretions we found contain plastics broken down to nearly a molecular level. I have no idea what anything could gain from plastic, but something clearly seems to be consuming it, breaking it down, and excreting it. It's leaving clouds of even more dangerous microplastics. It doesn't seem to mind consuming sea life either. You remember the bones that we hauled aboard? They were partially digested too. She posted some charts detailing migration patterns of sea life. As you can see from this chart, whale, dolphin, and almost all of the migration patterns have changed rather drastically in the last two years. They're swimming hundreds of miles off course to avoid coming into contact with the garbage patch. I don't think it's the plastic they're avoiding. My superiors want me to stay quiet. I don't understand why. There could be a biological marvel evolving right before our eyes. Cryptic, right? I sent her a response back, wondering what she thought this new species was. For a long time, she didn't reply. I got a response yesterday, and it's the reason that I decided to post all of this. My friends in the Philippines finished their testing. The DNA matches my own data. Not just like it's the same species. 99.9998% chance the substance came from the same entity. She linked an article about a cargo liner that disappeared mysteriously while traveling from Japan to Hawaii only a month ago. It was hauling industrial plastics. It seems it's searching for bigger sources of nourishment. Nature doesn't eat plastic, so what could it possibly gain? None of our studies can figure out what it's taking, but it's taking something. Its DNA is like nothing I've seen before, but it seems to have some things in common with cephalopods, perhaps a cuttlefish or an octopus. She linked to some other data she had collected. According to the professor, the plastic content of the trash vortex of the patch appears to be decreasing exponentially but further study revealed that plenty of plastic content is still there. It's just smaller. In the last month, almost a third of the content either disappeared or was reduced to microplastic soup. I could only reply with, what do you think it means? She didn't really answer that. She just said, a significant amount of microplastic excretion is turning up outside the patch. It's moving and we don't know where it is. The muck it leaves behind, we're still studying. Just for the people that might not be following, a garbage mass bigger than the state of Texas had a third of its contents broken down in less than a month. Debris from those contents is cropping up all over. We don't know what's causing it, 
Whatever it is, it's turning the toxic amount of plastic waste in the sea into even more dangerous microplastics. And now, it's leaving the garbage patch. My professor thinks whatever caused this phenomena is a single entity that closely resembles a cephalopod, and it might be responsible for the disappearance of a 300-meter cargo ship. Whatever it is, I think it's far too late to stop it. Update. The transcripts of our emails have disappeared. I can't get in contact with my professor. She said she was sworn to secrecy. She might be in trouble. There's not much else that I can do. What could an organic creature possibly gain from plastic? Watch the seas. My friends and I found what we thought was just an unfinished trampoline in the woods. Written by Weird Bryce Guy. We found the trampoline about a half a mile into the woods, well out of sight from my friend's backyard. It was just a rickety, thoroughly rusted metal frame, without the top or even the springs which allow for the actual bouncing. It sat within a small clearing, the encircling trees and underbrush giving it a wide berth. The grass around the trampoline had grown normally throughout the cycles, but the ground beneath the trampoline encompassed by its empty rim, was mostly dead. The grass, where it did exist within the space, was browned and vestigial. The three of us stood a few feet away, and I know I speak for everyone when I say that we were all immediately creeped out by the sight of it. Even though it had only been shortly afternoon when we had discovered it, the light which fell upon the trampoline was faint, dimmed by some invisible filter. The trees, spaced apart from each other by several meters, did not cast an umbrage upon the area. And yet somehow, the light immediately above and about the trampoline was weak, inexplicably diminished. Weirdly, eerily, the metal frame, armored in rust, seemed to glow. This contradictory appearance of luster in relation to the aforementioned abated light, made the overall image of the clearing feel deeply melancholic. My friend Leah cleared her throat, presumably the best thing she could think to do when faced with such an odd sight. Her boyfriend Jacob more articulately broke the odd silence by asking if the trampoline belonged to Leah. She shook her head quickly and emphatically, as if dismissing a serious accusation. I nodded, having known Leah since we were little kids. She had never had a trampoline, primarily owed to her fear of heights. Unsettled but also curious, I went forward, coming close enough to enter the spot wherein the light was noticeably weaker. A part of me expected to feel different upon entering that strangely occluded space and that same part was relieved when I felt no physical change. At such a close proximity, I confirmed that the trampoline was indeed lustrous. How? I couldn't tell. The curved, rust-covered metal somehow shone, emitted a soft, faintly visible glow. I called Jacob over, and together we walked around the thing, 
But after a few laughs, and neither of us could explain the frame's preternatural luster, I would have turned back, gone home having fully accepted the odd but otherwise ostensibly harmless trampoline. We were in our early 20s after all. But before I could even turn around and suggest that we leave, Jacob zipped up his jacket. I still don't know why he did that. Flexed his hands as if he were about to grab onto something, and then stepped over the frame's rim. His foot touched the dead ground, and for a moment he seemed fine. But when the second foot landed, Jacob froze. His body seized in mid-motion, and his hands clenched as if a powerful electric current had passed through his body. There was no sound. His paralysis was instant and widespread. A moment later, Jacob disappeared. I stood immobile, staring at the spot in total shock, even as Leah screamed hysterically behind me. I was only shaken from my petrification by the thudding footsteps which quickly approached me from behind. I pivoted and with a desperation I couldn't then explain, threw myself into Leah, tackling her to the ground. She struggled against me and I instantly felt bad about how roughly I had taken her down. But I was certain, without really knowing why, that the trampoline was dangerous, that something horrible had happened to Jacob and I wasn't about to let my best friend suffer the same fate. Eventually, she calmed down, or at least tired out, and resorted to almost incessantly whimpering at Jacob's name. I rolled away from her and explained why I had tackled her, while keeping my body ready to do it again, should she make another attempt to follow Jacob. She looked from me to the trampoline and then started crying. I got up, helped her up, and guided her out of the clearing, into the warm, properly luminous area beyond, as if the light had actually elucidated her mind. She suggested a sensible response to the situation, that we call the police. I withdrew my phone from my pocket, but before I could even unlock my screen, the entire atmosphere of the area flickered. Not just the light, but the ambience of sound as well. Nature seemed to skip a beat, and then carry on as if nothing had happened. But during that brief, atmospheric interruption, something did happen. Something which made me put my phone back in my pocket. Leah rushed past me, and this time, I didn't stop her. Jacob had come back. He stepped over the still radiant frame, stumbled, but was caught by Leah. She half walked, half carried him away from the trampoline's perimeter and into the space of regular light. Once there, she laid him on the ground. I then finally got a good look at his face and recoiled away in shock. Jacob, during his brief trip elsewhere, had aged. While he had once been a healthy 26-year-old man with brown hair and a bushy beard of the same color, he was now a shrunken, wizened old man with stringy gray hair and a beard that looked as if it had been dipped in a dirty mop bucket. His eyes, faded and veiny, stared distantly, unseen, perhaps seeing something beyond our perception. Leah tried speaking to him, but Jacob only mumbled incoherently, his thin lips parting and closing in what might have been an attempted speech. 
or merely some involuntarily spasming of his face. Leah looked up to me, tears streaming from her eyes. I fumbled for my phone, thinking that the early idea of calling the authorities was still a good one. But before I could find my phone, Jacob feebly gripped my wrist with a trembling hand, looked toward but not at me, and said, Please, you have to, you have to go through. Help me. Oh God, please help me. It's horrible, but you have to go. Please, bring the rest of me back. I recoiled away from him, severing the weak contact that he had made. Not necessarily because I was grossed out by his extremely aged appearance, but because the desperation in his voice, the sheer, unrelatable sorrow, it was powerful, immensely disconcerting. In a moment of clarity, he had implored me to go through, presumably through the trampoline, even though he had gone through and come out in such a dreadful state. Without acknowledging my admittedly rude and abrupt severance of touch, Jacob resumed his catatonic state, turned his head back toward the sky in that eerie, far-sighting gaze. I looked from Jacob to Leah and saw the pleading in her eyes. She wanted me to go through, wanted me to heed her boyfriend's words and bring back whatever portion of him he had left behind. In whatever world or reality he had unexplainably visited, I turned away from her, casting my gaze into a random spot on the ground. Leah started crying, taking my avoiding gaze as a sign that I was unwilling to go through the trampoline and retrieve Jacob's essence, or whatever he had left behind. Leah had been my friend for over a decade. We had met at school during the fifth grade, both of us looking for a particular edition of Goosebumps and found out days later that we lived on the same street. From there, our friendship blossomed. I had taken only weeks for me to arrive at the conclusion that I would do anything for her. When Jacob begged me to go back, I immediately made up my mind to do so, knowing that Leah would be irreversibly heartbroken if he was left in such a debilitated and apparently deprived state. While Leah still cried and held Jacob, I got up, went toward the trampoline, and without a parting word, stepped over the metal frame. My first foot landed without issue. There was no tingling, creepy paralysis, or sense of imbalance. Tentatively, with my heart pounding in my chest, I brought my other foot over the frame, careful to avoid touching the rusted yet somehow iridescent rim. When this foot landed and I stood completely encompassed by the trampoline's glimmering ring. A strange, vertiginous sensation came over me. The environs, specifically those beyond the trampoline, were immediately starkly cast in shadow. Darkness arrived with a suddenness and totality which threw me off balance. I fell to the ground, as if the arrival of the stinging background had brought with a new magnitude of gravity. The air itself felt heavy, encumbered by particles denser than those to which I had been accustomed. But the frame of the trampoline and the grass beneath it were both unchanged. It was as if the spot where I had been standing was suddenly transplanted into some eerily and darkened world, an outre dimension where gravity was a much more prevalent force. The sky, starless and bleak, 
was somehow lighter than the space beneath it. When I could manage to stand against the heightened perception of weight, I looked around, expecting to find some spectral version of Jacob listlessly stumbling along. But I saw no one, only the shimmering skeleton of the trampoline. Weirdly, I felt that the space beyond the trampoline, the dark draped mirror world, would be better, preferable in some inexpressible way to the interior of the frame. I felt drawn there, found myself wanting to immerse myself in that near pitch black darkness, where only the vague, almost immaterial forms of the trees stood in the dismal atmosphere. I either suspected or hoped that the gravity was somehow lighter in the space beyond, more tolerable than the ultra-weighted interior of the trampoline's frame. Moving as if in a trance, I found myself weakly climbing over the rim, unable to merely step over it like I had done before, due to the atmospheric burden placed upon my body. But before I could mantle the rim, a voice called out from somewhere deep within the darkness, Wait, Wait stay, stay inside. inside. I stared deeply into the murk and eventually saw a figure barely discernible against the background. Leaning against one of the gloom-befallen trees, their features were virtually undetectable, only suggestions of form and detail. I called out asking who they were, and in a voice which sounded strangely familiar, but deprived of something, they called back. I think, I think my name was Jack. Maybe Jacob? It doesn't matter right now. You must not leave the circle. Stay inside. Even though the alluring darkness's pull was powerful, almost spiritual, the sorrow-filled warning of that nearly disembodied voice was sobering. I stopped myself before I could clamor over the railing, and quickly withdrew from it as if it were toxic. I must have been clearly illuminated. I noticed for the first time that not only had the ground beneath me been transplanted, but the weak beam of sunlight as well, because the dark and shrouded stranger then said, Good, thank God. Standing in the center of the skeletal frame of the trampoline, resisting the ever-present psychic magnetism of the environing darkness, I had a brief but grimly informative conversation with the stranger. What is this place? I don't know exactly. It's just the place where you arrive when you've gone through. Through what? Who are you? Through that and the circle. Or was it a spear? The, the ring. The time siphoning ring. I don't remember who I am aside from what I've already told you. I just know that I've been here for an eternity. Or longer. Then I remembered what he had said only moments before. The single bit of information that he had given about himself. I had forgotten it in my fright. Or perhaps the preternatural darkness had made me forget. He had said his name was Jacob. I called out to him, this time by name, and the action of doing so seemed to grant him greater substance. He emerged from the gloom, looking more solid and less immaterial. He was Jacob, albeit shadowy, still not entirely there, a specter of Leah's boyfriend. I was sure that this was what the aged Jacob had left behind. His youth, his essence... I told the spectral Jacob to come to the trampoline, and while he did draw closer, 
he stopped just short of the rim. I finally noticed his condition. His skin was now completely exposed in grayish blue, as if he had been trapped in some frozen wasteland. The atmosphere, while heavy, was not cold. Its temperature was not noticeable at all beyond its baseline tolerableness. I can't go in there. It won't let me go in there. Even though the trampoline was obviously not a normal one, I had yet to sense anything actually inimical about the frame itself. Sure, it had teleported me and Jacob to some otherworldly pocket dimension or inverted realm, but the experience hadn't actually been uncomfortable or physically traumatic. I tried to tell Jacob as much, but he shook his head, and because of his less-than-solid composition, his gesture was eerily ghost-like. His eyes, heavily lidded and solemn, trailed from side to side in an unsettling black-and-white line. No, not the... not that. The thing out there, it... It takes you in, strips you from yourself, and tosses part of you away. You have to leave. You have to stop. Leah, you have to keep her from coming through. Jacob's voice, despite initially sounding weak and far off, resounded powerfully with this final plea. His voice rang out through the darkness, and I wasn't the only one to hear the echo. For a brief moment, the heaviness of the air seemed to lighten, or at least shift direction, as if blown or drawn in by some massive force elsewhere. A moment later, the greater gravity returned, and with it an impression of heart-chilling dread, an almost primal anticipation of some unknown yet assuredly hostile entity. I felt myself withdrawing from Jacob, moving closer to the center of the trampoline. He shrunk away from the darkness beyond, nearly coming in contact with the rusted metal rim. I realized then, as I awaited the emergence of some unknown thing, that I had not yet figured out how to make the trampoline work. Hadn't bothered asking or even guessing how I was supposed to go back. Oh god, it's coming. You have to go back. You have to leave right now. And in the distance, which seemed, from my perspective, paradoxically near and infinite, a shape took form. Massive, towering, but amorphous. A titan of constantly shifting shadows. Upon seeing it, Jacob seemed to lose the little substance he had attained by the remembrance of his identity. His form faded almost to a state of immateriality, leaving only the faintest outline of his figure. I called his name, or rather, I hoarsely whispered it, fearing to further provoke the slowly encroaching thing. I told Jacob that he needed to not only help me get back, but to return with me, so that he could join the rest of his body. Despite having been focused on, if not petrified by the looming horror, Jacob suddenly turned to me, his ghostly form continuing with an uncanny momentum well after he had stopped moving. What do you mean the rest of my body? His eyes, widened in fear, stared at me with an intensity unlike anything I had ever seen in a person. It was abject terror. I explained why I had traveled through the trampoline, reminded him of his own words, how he had said the thing ripped people apart, throwing back a piece of them through the portal. I think he screamed, or whatever. If he had had the breath and the substance of being to but instead his mouth merely widened inaudibly into an O, revealing an eerie hollowness within. 
No. I said it tosses a part of you away. It eats or does something horrible with one part, and then tosses these scraps away out here. I and the scraps, I was tossed away. I never went back through the trampoline. Whatever came through wasn't me. The realization was physically and emotionally destabilizing. My mind whirled as my knees buckled, and I must have in that moment looked as pale and as ghostly as my truly ghostly friend. I had left Leah behind with someone, but not with Jacob. How do I go back? I had to shout, because the tree dwarfing thing had cleared the encompassing line of trees, and as it reared itself in the open space, it let out a wave of raw, sonically oppressive sound. Jacob, barely capable of movement, screamed, this time audibly, through the monster's guttural wall of sound. Jump! I think you have to jump! Like a regular trampoline! Considering the circumstances, the idea sounded ridiculous, but upon seeing that colossal yet still visually unclassifiable entity, I was willing to try anything. I wanted to say something, wish him some kind of luck, but Jacob vanished from sight with the next moment, becoming entirely incorporeal, with the only evidence of his lingering existence being a faint, wind-like whisper, which implored me to save Leah. At what might have been a gargantuan, eyeless, clock-besetted head turned toward me, I jumped in place, and still landed within the perimeter of the trampoline, but back in the regular, daylit world. But my relief was short-lived, as I saw Leah struggling beneath the aged, yet surprisingly ferocious figure of that false future Jacob. His hands were around her throat, while hers scratched desperately but ineffectually at his arms. Her legs kicked at the grass and her shoes, throwing up clumps of dirt. The man's back was to me. My arrival apparently hadn't caused any noticeable changes in atmospheric conditions. Taking only a second to reorient myself, I vaulted over the trampoline's rim, rushed to the old man, gripped him by the waist, and unintentionally suplexed him. I threw his body back with such force that I heard his head collapse upon impacting the ground. For a moment, I was of course horrified at having committed such an extreme act of violence, but the instinctive guilt was quickly overridden by terror and revulsion as I watched the man rise from the ground with his head still partially crumpled. He, it, grinned at me, one vein-streaked eye bulging sickeningly from the socket. The weakness he had exhibited prior to my departure was gone. There was now a monstrous vitality about him, an impression of warped, unnatural life. Leah screamed and scampered away, and I probably would have fled with her if he hadn't cast his loathsome gaze in her direction. There was something so darkly unwholesome in that look, an impression which imitated the most perverse, wicked intentions. Enraged, I charged at him, expecting some near resistance, but he was easily swept up in my arms and I carried him like a flimsy pillow toward the trampoline. His body struck the rim and I heard the unforgettable sound of his spine breaking. I pulled myself away from him and cringed back further as he let out a short but infinitely sinister cackle. The one regularly set eye turned to me with a glare of mockery, while the other one looked as if it would fall from its socket at any moment. Immeasurably disgusted, I steeled myself against his glare and impossibly warped posture, and pushed the broken body over the trampoline's rim. 
It landed roughly on the grass, but rather than cry out in agony, the demon or something which was plainly not Jacob laughed even louder. While lying in that horribly bent state, it then said, You can send me back. You can even destroy this portal. But there are others. Every abandoned, broken thing which forms a circle, every derelict yet spherical structure, any ringed archway, they're all gateways to him, portals to the garden of outer time. You pathetically terrestrial humans build and build, leaving the old edifices to ruin, and every forsaken thing lost to the rushing cycles eventually connects to his nexus. The black horologist has overmastered time, and in the end, he will incorporate it all into his beautifully stagnant domain, and he will people the endarkened, crumbling cities with things unburdened by the laws of reality. I am but a test, a worthless precursor of the motionless insanity to come. Just as Jacob had, the undying demon thing vanished in an instant. I escorted Leah back to her house, leaving her sitting on the couch with a bottle of water tissues in her phone. She was unresponsive, which was perfectly understandable. I then went into her garage, grabbed a hammer and an aluminum baseball bat, and then trekked back to the clearing in the woods. It took a surprisingly long time, at least half an hour, but I eventually disassembled the trampoline's frame. Although beaten broke it down to several bent sections, it would be slightly more accurate. I spent another half hour burying these battered pieces, digging up the thankfully loose dirt with my hands. Once finished, I returned to Leah's house and did my best to console my traumatized friend. I told her about how Jacob had helped me escape from the outer world, which slightly withdrew her from her shock state but left out the appearance of that massive entity, that being known as the Black Horologist. I found a collection of old dolls. They changed their faces overnight. Written by Postmortem33. Collecting old things has always been a passion of mine. I think I was 10 years old when my grandfather gifted me a 17th century old pocket watch. It was gold-plated. I remember that moment vividly, even to this day. I opened the birthday present and it felt like I had received an old, lost treasure. I carefully took it out and listened to it, ticking for a few minutes. They say that if you take a shell and put it over your ear, you hear the sea no matter how far it might be. I felt like I was transported back in time, back to the 17th century, when I listened to the ticking of that old watch. I imagined all those gentlemen in their fancy suits, and the ladies dressed in beautiful garments walking the streets, or dining at expensive restaurants. That's when my passion started. I finally shifted my attention to paintings when I got older. In my mid-twenties, I bought my first one. It depicted a man sitting on a chair with a bottle in his hand. It said rum on the stamp. The man had covered his face with one hand and avoided looking at the large wall mirror in front of him. The lower half of the mirror was unclear, but on the upper part, the half of a man was depicted. He had wrinkles on his face, 
and each line had a story to tell. The dark circles under his eyes completed the desperation and sadness inside them. His crooked teeth accompanied the gloominess of the painting as a whole. That painting reminded me of my grandfather in a way. He had died of liver failure caused by excessive drinking. I love that man so much. He was a role model for me. Sometimes, though, our demons win. I just wish he had accepted our help. I stuck with paintings to this day. I always visited art galleries and antique fairs in search of new and old exciting paintings that I could add to my collection. A few days ago, I went to the weekly antique fair that I have been going to for the last 15 years. There I met a great seller whom I had befriended on the spot. He was like an encyclopedia when it came to antiques. Jonesy always cut me good deals as I've always bought a lot of things from him. Mostly art, but I've acquired some other things too. Cutlery, old watches, old lighters, World War I and II memorabilia, and other things which I either liked very much as works of art, or which had important historical value. You think it's gonna rain today, Harvey? Jonesy asked me while putting an old teapot on the table. It's overcast, yeah. I think we'll be lucky, though. You got anything for me today, Jonesy? Well, for you I don't, but I do have something for your missus. He pulled two porcelain dolls from under the table. A man and a woman who looked like kissing if put in front of one another. Jonesy had bought them from an old woman. She had collected porcelain dolls and wanted to downsize a little bit. These two were from the late 18th century, and as always, Jonesy cut me a good deal. I headed home and placed the dolls on my girlfriend's piano. She always loved surprises, and I couldn't wait to see her jumping up and down in excitement when she had seen them. I've always liked buying gifts out of the blue, with no special occasion, for people I love or who are very close to me. I had a few hours left until Tessa came home. I wanted to surprise her even more and I cooked some pasta. The entire kitchen smelled like an Italian restaurant. The savory flavor of basil floating around in the air. I would have to lie to say if I wasn't proud of myself. When returning to the piano room, I saw that the two dolls were not on the piano where I had placed them. Instead, I found them on the chair. That was weird to say the least. Not even that, but now they stood back to back, like they had just argued and didn't want to speak to each other anymore. I put them back on the piano, and I heard Tessa's keys jangling in the front door. I hugged and kissed her, but she was a bit out of it. Hard day today, Tess. Yeah, they want their reports until tomorrow, and I'm not entirely done with them. I might have to work late this night, she said. I'm sure you'll get them done, babe, you always do, I told her. You work so hard every time that I even ask myself how you manage to have so much energy. Yeah, me too. I'm gonna take a quick shower. Should we order some food after or do you want me to cook something? She asked. Babe, I already took care of that. I cooked us some nice pasta. Felt a bit chefy when I came back from the fair. I said, winking at her. She smiled timidly and headed straight to the shower. While climbing upstairs, I thought to myself how much would the dolls brighten her days when she would see them. I heard her calling me. I felt a sense of urgency in her voice. I entered the bathroom and saw her looking at the dolls. 
They were on the sink now. Are these for me? Yeah, I bought them at the fair. I wanted to give you a nice gift, I said. Thank you, honey, I love them. Look how cute they are. I kissed her on the cheek and nodded. Closing the door, I asked myself if I was going crazy. I could feel something was beginning to feel wrong in this house. Later on, we ate and she saw that I was tense and nervous. Are you alright, Harv? Yeah, it's just those dolls. I left them on the piano. I don't know how they got in the bathroom, I replied. She looked at me confused. I had never seen that look before. Uh, maybe you forgot you put them in the bathroom, she asked. No, babe, I'm not that crazy. I think something's wrong with them. I'll take them back and buy you another thing. No, they're mine, she cried. Tessa was changing. I felt that something was wrong with her. Ever since she had touched those dolls, she was no longer the same. Driven by a fear, I decided it was time for me to do whatever was in my power to get rid of those dolls right away. Okay, Tess, if you like them so much, you can keep them. They are my gift to you, after all, I said. I just hoped that she would fall asleep after finishing doing the reports for her work. Then I would take them outside and throw them in the trash can. It would have been hard. Tessa seemed practically glued to them. Her lips went dry and began to crack. Her once blue eyes were now bloodshot. They were twitching violently and dark circles appeared under them. She chewed on her nails until they didn't look like nails anymore. Whenever I tried talking to her, she didn't listen to any word that I said. Whenever I tried to hug her, she would push me away. I felt like a prisoner in my own home. I was even more conflicted and scared because Tessa was herself the prisoner of those things. I couldn't call the police or the ambulance because they would think Tessa was crazy, or that I'm pulling pranks on the cops in the middle of the night. I kept looking at the dolls and their faces were changing constantly, from what was happiness that I saw in the fair, to anger in the bathroom and now to pure evil. They grinned in a way that sent a shiver down my spine. Tessa, though, took care of them as nothing happened. To her, they were still beautiful. I thought whatever was inside the dolls must have taken a hold of Tessa. Her priority was those dang dolls. The problem was that I fell asleep before her, just for a few moments. When I woke up, though, every light in the house was turned off. Tessa was gone. I called for her, but she was nowhere to be seen or found. I went to every room in the house to search for her. Nothing. The only place left to look was the basement. I turned on my phone's flashlight and went down there. The air was damp, cold, and heavy. It was freezing. While moving my flashlight around, I saw Tessa standing in the far corner of the room. She was facing the wall, and the dolls were standing on a shelf on her left. She was barefoot and wearing a nightgown that I've never seen before. Tessa, honey, what are you doing? I asked. I'm taking the dolls, Harvey. They told me that you want to harm them and take them away from me. That you want to throw them away like a piece of trash. I won't let you do that, she replied. Her head suddenly tilted back and she looked at me. I heard her neck bones cracking and her eyes had no color in them anymore. They were devoid of life and humanity. Moving the flashlight down to her hands, I saw that she held a large kitchen knife. 
I shivered and a lump formed in my throat. Heart racing, I barely had the mental clarity to find my words. Tess, what are you doing with that? She didn't reply. Letting out a high-pitched scream, she started running towards me. I knew she didn't want to hurt me. Whatever influence these dolls had on her was what made her act like this. This needed to stop as soon as possible, or both of our lives would be over. I ran so quickly up the stairs that I didn't look back. I just heard her screaming and laughing, echoing throughout the house. My heart wanting to burst out of my chest, I went inside of the piano room. Come out, Harvey. I won't hurt you. I just want to talk, she said. Her behavior terrified me. My mouth was dry and it was very hard for me to swallow. I had never seen her like this. I played a few notes to draw her attention. The key was still inside the door lock and I wanted to lock her in there so that I could go back to the basement. There, I would take those dolls and get the lighter and fill her from the garage and take them in the backyard and burn them. I took the key and hid behind the door. Tessa was coming in, fast footsteps towards the room. Come out, Harvey. I won't hurt you. I just want to talk. She kept repeating that like a broken record, again and again. Sweat came down my temples. I watched as she opened the door. The knife was the first thing I saw. Its blade shined in the night, screaming for blood to be shed. I thought that if I pushed the door, Tessa would be caught off guard. She groaned when it hit her. Her appearance worsened. Her eyes were now filled with blood, and the dark circles under them were even darker than before. The nails she had bit on earlier were bloody now. She had chewed on them until they were pretty much nothing. She looked like something was consuming her, taking over her body and eating away at her spirit. Her hair was all wet and her whole demeanor was not natural. She looked at me, but she didn't run anymore. She slowly walked towards me, knife in hand. I could hear her bones crackling with each step she took. She lunged at me, knocking me down. I saw stars when my head hit the floor. I came back to it pretty fast, but she had already jumped on top of me. She rose the knife and dropped it with formidable speed into my right shoulder. Blood stained my white shirt and the pain was something like nothing I have ever felt before. I screamed and she just laughed. Those cursed dolls were driving her insane. She played with the knife for a little in the fresh wound, twisting and turning it like a maniac. I felt like my life was soon to be over. She took it out and again rose it above her head, holding it with two hands. I placed the palm of my left hand above my face. It pierced through and blood fell on my face like the droplets of summer rain. In a rush of adrenaline, I grabbed her wrist with my other hand and squeezed as hard as I could. I pushed her over, managing to get up. I got the knife and ran and locked the door from the outside. Tessa started banging on the door and it looked like she would eventually break it down. My time was limited and the only purpose I had in life at that very moment was to get rid of those porcelain dolls. I limped toward the basement. My right shoulder was torn to shreds and my left hand had an approximately three inch long slit in it. I left a trail of blood behind and it was probably the scariest thing I had ever experienced in my entire life. I asked myself if the dolls would still be there on the shelf. They had moved as they had pleased throughout the house earlier that day. 
I shuddered at the thought. I descended the basement stairs. My phone was on the ground, a flashlight pointing up. When I picked it up, the light began to flicker. Pointing it to the shelf, I saw the dolls with their jaws dropped. They looked as if they had seen something horrible. A thing that they couldn't believe was happening. Oh, still here, huh? I'll take good care of ya. See, this and this. I told them, showing them my wounds. You did this to me, you monsters. The moment I grabbed them, Tessa screamed at me to let them go. I limped back to the main floor and stopped in front of the piano room door. My blood colored the dolls coating them in the crimson liquid almost completely. Tess, you know I love you, right? I have to do this for both of our good. Look what they've done to you. To us, I said. Honey, Tess, you're not well. You haven't been since you've seen these things. I said leaving. Tess started banging the door violently and she screamed at me not to do it. I first went into the garage. I took the lighter and a gas for the for it. I grabbed those and went to the backyard. I doused the dolls in gasoline and set them ablaze. Their faces continued to morph as they were burning in the flames. They went from violent anger to fear to grief and ultimately to something that resembled hate. Porcelain has a high tolerance to heat, so the only things that burnt were the hairs and clothing. Their remains were horrible to look at. I crushed them under my foot until they were nothing but bits and pieces. I collected what was left and put it in a jar which I filled with dirt. I then took it outside in the trash can. I returned to the piano room and found Tessa laying on the floor, unconscious. I shook her and she woke up after a few minutes. Uh, Harvey, what happened to you? My god, you're hurt. She screamed when she saw my wounds and my blood-soaked clothing. You don't remember anything, I asked. No. Something was wrong with those dolls, Tessa. They did horrible things to you. It was like they made you listen to them and follow what they said. And I told her. Her appearance was back to normal now. No bloodshot eyes, no dark circles under her eyes, and no blood on her nails. I continued telling her the rest of the story in minute detail. Everything that had happened. She started crying and she told me that she was sorry. And I told her that it wasn't her fault. She helped patch my wounds and we laid in bed. Of course, we couldn't sleep for the following night. Every creak and every noise in the house made us question everything. Sometimes Tessa managed to catch a shut-eye for a few minutes, but she would always wake up immediately screaming. Those dolls were giving her nightmares still. I mean, how couldn't they? Even if this was the scariest experience in both my and Tessa's life, it also made us stronger. It united us more. Today, I was finally able to get out of the house. It felt good inhaling the fresh morning air. I wanted to surprise Tessa and I bought her flowers and chocolate. Those never fail. One strange thing happened when I came back home. As I was walking on the sidewalk, I saw the trash men collecting trash from each house. I waved at them and smiled when they picked up mine. I swear to God that when the rear loader dumped the trash into the hopper, I saw the same two dolls that I had burned between the trash bags. Thank you all for listening to today's lineup of stories. I hope you enjoyed. And thank you again to today's sponsor, HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Creepscast14 
and use code CREEPSCAST14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. I'm actually going to whip up one of HelloFresh's delicious meals right now after I finish recording this. I hope you all have a great day or night wherever you may be in the world. And as always, stay creepy.